I will keep it here with me until it is needed. As you command, would you have me bleed you? Victorian seized the dusky woman by the wrist and pulled her to him. She will do it. Go pray to your red god. Light your fire and tell me what you see. Makoro's dark eyes seem to shine. I see dragons. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh no. Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredis. Each episode of Valar Reredis for the Winds of Winter will feature a guest or guests. We'll take a closer look at each chapter, going through them one by one instead of in batches. A standard warning must apply as well. These chapters are subject to change by the time they are finally published at last. But today's guest, the first of our guests for this series on the Winds of Winter uh, chapters for Valeritas, is the one and only Joe Magician. Hello, Joe Magician. Hey, guys. Uh, it's, been, it's been too long since I've done History of Westeros. Previously, we talked about, what, diseases, Alice, Rivers, <laughs> the other ones. Boy, that disease the episode kind of aged differently, didn't it? <laughs> That one, I don't want to go back and listen to. It's like, oh, look, George went through do some really cool things with disease and wins the winner. I'm like, I'm good. Yeah, we'll just we, wait. We can just skip that one entirely. We'll, we'll just talk about other stuff until that comes and deal with that at the time. Yeah, we'll just pretend. Um, yeah. <laughs> so oh, you're, boy. you're doing uh, regular streams over there on your channel and covering a lot of great topics. Why don't you catch people up on what you've been doing lately, just in case they're not up to date? How dare they? But uh, (laughs) on Saturdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, except for this coming Saturday, because I'll be working. But I've been doing kind of random topics just sort of top of my head. No rereading thing or like, I don't even think there's a theme to them. It's just like, what caught my interest on Thursday? And that's what I ended up doing the stream on. Do two hours. Last one was about the, we actually did a ranking the spinoffs, which one will be the best. Unfortunately, Ashea, Nymeria's did not win. Oh, Duncan Egg won, of course. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. Uh, and that's on the uh, YouTube channel, Joe Magician, youtube.com slash Joe Magician. And uh, coming up, I also have a video about what Lady Stoneheart really wants in the Winds of Winter. And it, I think it's more than just butchering a lot of phrase, although that is a key component. Who She's not going to not want to kill a lot of phrase. phrase. <laughs> cool. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, y'all should check that out if you haven't. I know a lot of people listening slash watching today are already regular watchers of the Joe Magician tube. So that's cool. So they are well aware. <laughs> but the rest of you 
get on it if you haven't. And I actually think just as a comment on your approach there, I think that's a really good way to do it. Like going with what is interesting to you at the moment. You know, that's, that's where a lot of enthusiasm comes from, like sticking with what you care about most. So I actually think that's a really good way to do it. It's um, good when it works. When it doesn't, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I have to think of two hours about, oh God, about what? Oh God. <laughs> most of the time it works though. <laughs> well, each episode of Val Arboretus for the Winds of Winter will also start with a history of the chapter itself. These are generally going to be just a couple of lines. There's not a lot of history for each of these chapters, but it's fun to know these little details. For example, this was the third of the sample chapters to make its way out into the public. Theon 1 was officially released as in full form on George's website first, and then Tyrion 1 was read at a convention, and then this one was read at a convention, and then it was read again. So it's been read out loud twice, but both times were in 2012, March at Tiff Bell Lightbox in Toronto, and then at MissCon, who knew? In May 2012, the place to be was Missoula, <laughs> Montana, because not only was the Victorian chapter read there, but the uh, Tyrian chapter was read there as well. So that's pretty sweet. Missoula, Montana got the hookup in 2012 with those chapters. However, not the entire Victorian chapter was preserved. Only about, well, I would say about half, but I don't actually know. I don't know how much of it's missing. The rest has been summarized. And we have about eight minutes of it that was recorded on YouTube and summer and, and taken down, you know, word for word. So that's what we're working with today. But of course, as always, this touches on a number of topics, this chapter, and that gives us a springboard to discuss a variety of things. So that's what we'll use this for. We'll bring up a lot of the different things that this chapter touches on and use that to make predictions and explore the deeper topics that those things indicate. Let's start off with the brief synopsis. Uh, just a couple paragraphs here. Victorian prepares a sneak attack on Marine, planning on breaking their siege of the city. He's excited for the battle, and his men are excited to go home. He reveals that the horn will be blown during the battle at some point. The job of sounding it will fall to three hapless, alliteratively nicknamed thralls, each tasked with blowing it once apiece. Calling on dragons and one of A Song of Ice and Fire's more chilling recurring motifs, the triple horn blast. He rubs some of his blood into the horn, imagines how great he's going to be, and puts on his admittedly sweet armor before heading up on deck to give a hearty speech. As his men cheer, they sail towards Marine and the action. Joe Magician, what is your first impression of this chapter? You know, sometimes people say that George is bad at writing romance, love, and, and even sex scenes. And I think this goes the other way because this is... <laughs> a beautiful chapter about the deep, deep love Victorian Greyjoy has with this weird dragon horn as he caresses it, calls it mine, for some reason thinks about how he just really, really, really wants to blow it right, right after he <laughs> thinks about how I can't have sex with a dusky woman, which for some reason in his head, he's linking blowing the horn with sex. And it's like, okay, Victorian, I don't know what's going on in your head, but Euron has done some very strange things to you in this time, or Makoro. I don't really know what's going on here. It feels almost like Victorian's under a spell or that he's ensorcelled in some way because what he's saying and what he's doing as he's about to go into a ferocious battle against enemies he has basically no scouting on is kind of terrifying, especially when you consider the kind of brute and the pure amount of violence Victorian's capable of dishing out. Like It really feels like this is the step before 
he and the Ironborn lose their minds in the bow of fire to kill maybe everybody around them. Yeah, they're like about to become a bunch of Cthulhu cultists. They're about to become the thing that they're an homage to or something. Yeah. I totally agree with you about it feels like there's more going on than just ambition. That's a major topic we have to discuss today where it seems like something magical is going on. And in typical George fashion, there's multiple candidates for what could be the influence. And it might not be just one of them. It could be all of the above. Uh, Also, that's a fairly standard thing for George to do that we enjoy very much because he's good at it and it's fun. It sets up mysteries and it gives us a lot to talk about. This chapter also is a very underrated, uh, contains a very underrated set of subplots. And what I mean by that is there's very little in this chapter and that is set up by this chapter that's been spoiled by the show, right? Like Victorian, Makoro, the Dusky Woman, the Dragonhorn, none of that's on the show. Not only not, are they not on the show, but it isn't like given to some other character. Like that's something they did a lot, right? They would mm. uh, narrow things down and give one character's plot to another to not have to introduce a new character. That was a pretty common thing for them to do. A lot of times it was understandable. Sometimes it made you scratch your head, but yeah, they definitely had to shrink and narrow things down a bit. No one on the show had a firearm, right? <laughs> Danny didn't get a full-time advisor like Makoro is somewhat set up to be, uh, like a Melisandre of her own to match Stannis's Red Priest, right? And the show's version had Danny leading the attack on the, the siege, the ships around Marine in the show. And she's not going to be in this battle at all in the books, it doesn't seem. Like, I would say 99.9% she's not going to be anywhere near this battle. So that's a great strength of this plot line, that it's very much unspoiled, uh, but it's also kind of folding itself into the other plot line. So meaning in A Dance with Dragons, Victorian and the Iron Fleet were in full travel mode, piracy mode. Now he's actually set to interact with other POVs, even if it's just battle. But there's reason to think there's going to be stuff after the battle. Example being, well, Danny's not there and that's their goal. So something's got to give there. They got to be like, well, uh, we can't capture her if she's not here. <laughs> so that's a, one of the things I want to touch on first. Another question for Joe Magician here. What do you think of this structure with this battle being one of the first things we see. And here's an actual quote from George. He said, this chapter, this Victorian chapter starts, quote, five minutes after the end of The Winds of Winter. He wants to resolve these two big battles first and then get into other business. So that's a pretty big change, isn't it? Starting off with battles. We've never really had anything like that. Uh, How do you feel about that? I think this kind of shows a difference in the narrative as he's uh, kind of progressed through A Song of Ice and Fire where he previously likes using big moments of blood and battle and killing as the way to do the climax of his books. And then normally there's kind of a few chapters to cool off and then it ends with something leading up into the next one. This is a very different, almost a Feast for Crows style narrative change, where instead he's giving you the battle up front and he wants you to think about the consequences of it afterwards. It's not, the battle isn't the thing to that's the most interesting part of what's about to happen. He's Mm going to use that to tell a lot of narrative stories. As you said about Danny, what's going to happen with her, Barristan's aftermath, Victorians, what's going on with the dragons. Everything about the Battle of Fire is setting things up instead of being the point of the book, sort of. like You kind of see that with the Battle of the Blackwater with the Red Wedding. All these big, big moments are what everything's leading up to. And I think that's a very different way of trying to get his audience to think about battle and... um, just the mass violence in a very different way. That's a great, great way to put it. And also I'd say, especially as using Blackwater, since you mentioned it as a comparison, 
when you read slash watch Blackwater for the first time, it's one of the few battles, I think, in the entire series. And it's actually, this is something you could say in, in general about fiction. Let's be honest. Most of the time when you see a battle on screen, you know who's going to win before it even starts. Mm. That's true. And that's true with these battles. We know Victorian may not accomplish his goals, but he's basically fighting on Daenerys' side in, you know, as part of his game here. And that's going to work, at least, that part. Meaning mm-hmm. that Daenerys' side is going to win this battle. No one's doubting, really, that Stannis is going to win the Battle of Ice or that Euron is going to win this battle that's being set up. Right? It's, it's not, like you say, it's not the result of the battle that's the surprise. It's, it's maybe who lives and who dies and what else it sets up. And as you say, the aftermath, the conflict, the way the characters respond to it, that's the meat. That's the thing what, that we care about the most, perhaps. And in this battle, it's similar. We maybe don't have as many characters from Victorian's side of things that are in his ship or whatever that we are concerned for their future, but they're certainly going to interact with characters that do. Let's talk a few themes and parallels real quick, and then we'll get into some of the specifics. So this chapter is, as we said, partly uh, is only summarized, the the second half, and the the first half is fully written out. So it seems to end with some kind of rousing speech, of which we don't know the words. Interestingly, that's also a key feature of Barristan 1. We do actually get the words for that speech. Likewise, Barristan names his horn as a signal during the battle, and Victorian's plan for the dragon horn is for it to be blown at a specific time as well, as well as a specific number of times. Nicely fitting with this theme of three is the presence of three POVs giving us this battle. We have Tyrion, Barristan, and Victorian sort of triangulating it or pyramiding it. Uh, Their chapters start roughly at the same time, pre-dawn on the day of the fighting. Since George said this chapter starts five minutes after the end of A Dance of Dragons, it seems like a decent one to begin with. But also, a surprise attack by the Ironborn on Slaver's Bay may also parallel a surprise Ironborn attack on Old Town. Well, actually, it wouldn't be a surprise that they're attacking. It would be a surprise that they succeed, at least to the people on the inside. Us readers wouldn't be so surprised. What I mean by that is Old Town knows Euron's trying to get in, but they may be preparing for the wrong type of attack. Perhaps similarly, we can say that Stannis has a rather huge surprise defense. Instead of a surprise attack, he's got a surprise defense, the ice lake for the phrase. Quite a lot of other things hang in the balance, like who lives and who dies. And of course, supernatural elements in this battle, uh, this chapter in particular, is where the supernatural elements are the most discussed, the most highlighted. And that is where some of the biggest mysteries lie. So that's a cool aspect of this chapter that is not present so much in Tyrion or Barristan's chapters. Also, more interesting parallels. Victorian in this one thinks of his first battle, and so does Tyrion. And Barristan mentions his first battle as part of his speech. It, they always, and Tyrion thinks how you always remember your first. Well, Tyrion's first is the most recent of the three of them, so <laughs> he's the springboard for thoughts like that, where Victorian is the guy that's like, I'm so ready. <laughs> he's the one that's the most lusty for this battle. They all get their armor on during their chapters. Barristan's already armored as his chapter starts. It's the, one of the first things described. But the, the dusky woman helps Victorian and Penny helps Tyrion. In the Forsaken chapter, Euron's armor is going to be noted as well. And let's just say it's vastly fancier than Barristan's gilded white enamel or Victorian's kraken adornment or even the breastplate with scenes of depravity that Tyrion claims from the dead Yunkish lords slain by Jorah at the end of Tyrion too. So these three POVs also ponder the danger. Tyrion's anxious. He's the least experienced in battle, the least uh, warrior-like of them. 
although he's not too bad. He's certainly survived a couple battles. But more importantly, it reminds him that he wants to live uh, and makes him question whether he deserves to. Barristan actively feels alive due to the prospect of death. And he, he notes how interesting that is when you're on the edge of death, you feel the most alive. Victorian, though, he just can't wait. He's just ready to go. It's sort of like how we all can't wait for the winter winter. It's very, it's kind of meta, right? <laughs> so back uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. to Victorian. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so like we did in Valar Reredus for the main portion, main released series, we started off every episode with our homemade titles and the first line of the chapter. So we'll do the same thing here. Victorian one, the horn has three blowers, aka the prequel to Ocean's Eleven, Ocean's Ten, to Coles. And it starts off, <sighs> the noble lady was a tub of a ship as fat and wallowing as the noble ladies of the green land. And I think Joe just quit because of the puns. <laughs> He's yes. Off to do this. The, the Z's puns got to me again. It's like, it's, it's been good talking to you guys. Huh? I'm just going <laughs> to head out, you know, that's pretty how it goes. I was also thinking about the themes as you were talking about them and in terms of how excited Victorian is, but it's not even really clear what he's excited for. Like, in a sense, it's battle. Like, he wants to kill a lot of people, but he also really wants to blow that horn. But he also really wants to get Daenerys. And it, he's his mind is so scattered, like we were talking about earlier, that it seems like this, someone's messing with his head. It seems like there's like, as you said, like the tentacles of Ocean's Eleven, but it's like, there's like three or four Victorians, even in this chapter, that seem to be totally at odds with each other and what their goal is for the Battle of Fire. It makes, it makes me question, just like as a reader, like, what is he going to be like at the end of this? Is it going to be like an internal struggle between the, his different um, wants and needs as he goes into it? Barrison and Tyrion are pretty straightforward. Like you said, Barrison wants to have like at least one last great battle. Tyrion is trying to survive, but we get the feeling he's probably going to find his way into somebody's inner council. It's like, what? <laughs> which, which Victorian will win? And I think the answer to that could be pretty terrifying, to be honest. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm, as we'll get to a bit later in the episode, I have, like almost everyone, I don't expect Victorian to survive the series, but I'm dubious that he's going to die early on in this battle or in the battle at all. I think his death maybe comes later. And well, we'll get to that. But to start off, one of the questions that's out there, been out there in the fandom for a while, is the question of the missing ships. Now, it could just be something straightforward. Like, this is a dangerous voyage, after all. And they did have storms afflict them. However, 30... Uh, he broke his squadron into three, and one of the squadrons, only nine of the 33 to 35 ships made it. So a really small number, only about a quarter. And those are the ones that passed through Sothorio. So also, as was the most dangerous area uh, that they happened to pass through. Are, do you have any thoughts on the missing ships? Well, my, um, my very skeptical side just says, George has ships lose all the time. It doesn't always mean anything. But you, you could easily write it so they don't go missing. So then what's the point? Is it, is it that there's a secret like Euron fleet that's trailing behind and they're waiting for Victoria to do something and they have separate orders? Or is it maybe supposed to, as a narrative purpose, supposed to make Victoria more desperate to blow the horn? Because if he had his full fleet, then like he'll win easily, right? I mean, he's fighting against guys that are on stilts and chained together. Like this is going to be an easy victory. But if Victorian wants to achieve his total victory, whatever that even means at this point, 
it seems like George is very much pushing him towards the fact that he's going to rely on Makoro and the horn more than his axe. Hmm, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, just something that makes Victorian take more risks. That's a great yeah. idea because I, I personally am not a gr- big fan of the conspiracy theory. After all, Euron wants Victorian to succeed. It seems strange that he would undermine mm. him in a, in a mission that he himself wanted to do himself. Remember, Victor- Euron was the one that planned on going himself before the Ironborn mm-hmm. shouted him down. It was like, nah, let's stay here. And he had to change his plan. So I don't think that was some kind of trick. And especially the idea that um, like, if there's some sort of double cross coming for Victorian, it's not like Euron is against kinslaying and he's and he would probably very much enjoy killing victorian by his own hands um or at least watching it happen him sending an extra fleet to attack victorian after he wins a battle like that doesn't seem like him he really enjoys seeing the effect of his bad actions personally and i think that would be destructive to the fleet like why not just kill the single man and and cause like wreck all those ships that doesn't it seems really inefficient right And also, uh, we were noted that among the missing ships is was led by Red Ralph Stonehouse, which is one of Victorian's most loyal guys. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, he couldn't have turned against him, but it's certainly a, an argument against that. One idea I like, though, amongst this is that he doesn't really care about the fleet, that the whole thing might be misdirection. Mm. He doesn't care about, he may not even care about Daenerys, meaning that all he cares about is that horn being blown in the presence of dragons. One way or another, that's what matters most. Blow that horn. The rest to him is just misdirection. To, to him, that's the only thing that really matters. You think that's a possibility or is there something maybe missing from that idea that makes it not work? I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think one thing that's very strange about reading this chapter is how much his perception of Euron's quote-unquote poisonous gifts has shifted. Earlier on in the book, he's like, everything Euron gives me, uh, it's poisonous. It's the worst thing ever. He's suspicious of the Dusky Woman. He's suspicious of the, of the dragon horn itself. And by this chapter, he has completely flipped on them. So he's like, the Dusky Woman's great. I love her now. I love the dragon horn. This is all going to go great. <laughs> Everything's coming up Victorian. And I think that's sort of the place we're going to, that he's really lost perspective on practical things around him. Like, like I said, it really does seem like something is drawing him towards blowing that horn in a way that's forcing him to ignore everything else he should be concerned about. Ah, that's a very good way to put it. Yeah, I, I think that there's some odd things missing from his plan. And some people might chalk that up to him being not very bright. On the other hand... He's a good he, tactician. Yeah, he's not dumb about combat, right? He's, he's yeah. got a lot... His culture has a lot of experience there. Uh, this trick with the hiding men on ships isn't something he came up with on his own. It's something that probably Ironborn have done before, and he's just borrowing uh, an existing play from the playbook mm. that has been tried and true. Uh, it's not like something he just came up with on his own, I'm guessing. Uh, he just smartly applied it to the situation, probably from a, you know, a choice of about 10 options or something like that, something small. So yeah, so it doesn't mean that he's necessarily super clever, just that he's capable within his element. And he is a, clearly a capable sailor. Like, you, you can't go across the world with 100 ships. Well, he didn't, all, not all of the ships made it, but still. <laughs> he did still. a pretty good job. It's a high percentage. Yeah, I mean, I would have done way worse. So <laughs> <laughs> I would wreck one boat, never yeah. mind 35. I would have had a fate more like Maester Kerwin, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Poor Maester Kerwin. Oh. Let's talk. Let's get right into the horn then. That horn is certainly one of the biggest, most curious and interesting aspects of this chapter. It's super mysterious. We have no idea what's going to happen. We have some 
Well, maybe we have some idea, but picking amongst those ideas as to which is more likely is very difficult. We'll start off with a small quote here. We'll talk about the horn as a physical thing and then on to its <laughs> effects. Real quick, I want to shout out our project. The Winds of Winter Victorian audio project is only a day or two probably from being released. So keep an eye out for that. If you're watching live, it's not out yet. But if you're hearing this edited podcast version, by the time you're hearing this, it may already be out. So check our social media and as well, check for the other chapters, which we're working on as well. Think of how big the dragon must have been to bear two of these upon his head. Bigger than Vagar or Meraxes. Bigger than Balerion the Black Dread. You had a reaction to hearing the size of his horn. <laughs> so did a lot of our commenters. Yeah. It was one of the most commented on like small details was that a lot of people, A, didn't realize the horn really came from a dragon and are perhaps dubious of that. And some people were just weren't completely clear on dragon anatomy in general, which is, you know, an interesting topic. So let me get your reaction in general to this, this horn. So the first time the horn shows up in the King's Moot, I don't remember thinking too hard about it in terms of like, it says it's a dragon horn, but I'm like, that must mean a horn for dragons. Like, yeah, like, like maybe it's like a big aurochs horn. Maybe it's like some big ain't long dead animal. You never know. The Lyrians were all over the place. Um, (laughs) I didn't really put too much thought into it. And then you read this chapter and it clarifies it. No, it's a, it's not a horn for dragons. It's a horn from a dragon. And also that's bigger than Balerion. It's like, wait a second. Does Victorian know how big Balerion the Black Dread's head was? I'm not really so sure on that one. Uh, but that, that was one thing that like really threw me. I was like, I, I think I asked you in like Twitter DMs. I was like, Aziz, do, do dragons have horns? Like, did I miss something here? Because I, I kind of thought of it like this big curvy thing. And I remember that the dragons have like, the, like the spikes coming out the back of their head. I was like, is that horns or those skulls? But I guess they are. I ended up convincing myself that yes, they actually are, is a horn of a dragon because it's, um, it has that black iron color to it, which we know yeah. the dragon bones actually have. So it's like, okay, so I guess that's what's going on here. But thinking about like in the terms of, so a massive dragon died at some point and they ripped off one of its horns and then did all this other magic to it. And it's, it left me questioning I was a big doubter, to be honest, of like what exactly the horn did at the King's Moon. I was like, okay, like maybe, like it seems like Euron was just putting on a good PowerPoint presentation. Like he had music, <laughs> he was showing off his all of his loot, all these other kind of things. Like he convinced them that way. But now that I realize that it's actually literally a dragon horn, along with all the like the runes and stuff on it, I'm like, okay, so maybe this actually does have a magic effect that I was really discounting earlier, and I didn't expect to get that from this chapter. That, yeah, it's a really neat. It's it's a, a surprising part if you get into that. It's easy to miss to think of it as just he's seduced by the power from a human mm. perspective. And that is probably part of it. As we said at the beginning, it's it's probably not just one reason. My favorite example of, of something that has multiple uh, influences and that are probably all accurate is like Jamie's fever dream after having his hand cut off when he's having, he's drank dream wine He's got a fever and he's put his head on a weirwood stump. So so all three of these things seem to be in play, right? It's the same thing here. I think we have real life ambition. He's legitimately like feels that this thing can give him power, but there's magic going on. The horn itself is sorceress and it may be having like a 
you know, a golem type effect on him, calling, causing him to want it. He's, it's, he's horny for the horn. And, uh, and then there's, and then there's Makoro, like firearm, like that could be some sort of form of control, not unlike how Melisandre is controlling Mance through those bracelets, those Ruby bracelets Mm -hmm. you know, there's some, maybe some sort of relation to that type of magic. So first of all, let's start off with where the horn came from. Another claim that's made in this is, is my brother got the horn from Valyria. He just uncritically repeats that claim, which has been not debated in the fandom quite a bit. I, I, originally, I was like, no way. No way did Euron go to Valyria. <laughs> now I'm like, okay, maybe... Now I fall on the, I, on, the, on the idea that he did go, but he didn't personally go. He went there and made his slaves do it because sure. it's so similar to how the Valyrians treated their slaves, sending them down into the mm-hmm. mines to face fireworms and gas and death to get loot. And that's this what this is, right? So I think that fits super well. So I think the horn came from the warlocks who were bent on revenge on Danny, and he just sort of absconded their plan. Is that where you fall on it? Do you think the horn came from the warlocks or Valyria? Or do you have any, anything else to say about that or disagreement or agreement or whatever? The weird thing about, um, about Euron and Valyria is that he gets so upset when Roderick the Reader tells him he never stepped foot on Valyria. Yeah. And... I, I tend to think that's George at least letting us letting us know that Roderick has hit on something true, like you were saying. Like, sure, he went to Valyria in the same sense that he like stood outside and from the windows looking in. <laughs> well, like you said, like he let his slaves or his mutes go in. Where did they even find it? Like, we know yeah. that Valyria was destroyed by volcanoes. The cities are in ruins. Are we to believe that they're like somewhere close to the shore? <laughs> There's just like a temple with a dragon horn sitting there. And then the mutes went in. They're like, well, pff, this is what we need to get uh, Euron. This is what he's looking for, right? He told us to look for dragon horn stuff, right? It's like, <laughs> I, I don't know about that. It seems so dangerous that anyone that goes on there is probably going to die like quite soon or turn into stone men. So I tend to believe the warlock story that he stole from them. I was also, I was thinking back to the idea that this has came to me. <laughs> I was thinking about how the horn may have been having an effect on Victorian. Do you remember in the under the gallery at King's Landing, Tyrion and Arya both have the sensation that the dragon skulls are alive. Ooh, they think they're watching them. They think they can hear them scream, like yelling. And it's like oh. a weird thing in the back of their head. And this may be reinforcing the fact that there's something that lingers in dragons because they're so magical. But anyway. That is a good um, point. Yeah, I didn't think about the skulls in that light, the way they did kind of. Both Tyrion and Arya, you're right. That's This has sort of been... It's, if, if it's one, you can dismiss it. It's both. That's yeah. weird. Mm, good catch. But, that's good. But for the warlocks, like, Karth is so old, and the warlocks are so strange. I've often wondered if the Undying and the warlocks themselves are, like, some sort of organization that actually came from Valyria or something like that, or they had roots with Valyria, some sort of deep relationship. Maybe they traded for it at some point. Maybe they traded a whole bunch of their uh, their shade the evening to the Valyrians who really like going on droid trips. And they're like, here, have this horn. Because that's one thing we know about the Valyrians is that the things that exist now are rare because Valyria is gone. But they weren't rare at the time. Like Valyrian steel swords were everywhere. They were common. It's only They're only worth as much as a mountain because the smiths are now gone. Yeah. So with how old the Palace of Dust is and kind of, or maybe almost a symbolic relationship between the fall, the palace of dust itself, and the fall of a, some great magical thing, which was Lyra. Maybe there was there's some kind of connection there. 
I could just believe that over the many centuries and the power of the warlocks that they just acquired a dragon horn. They've been holding on to it as kind of like a cool thing to have, not really needing it. Cause, yeah, because there's no dragon. Why would you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, oh, hey, all of a sudden this has a use. <laughs> or or nice. fallen Valyrian houses, like we see with, with Rayla's crown. After a certain point, Viserys and Danny have to sell it. With Valyria gone, there's a lot of big magical Valyrian houses that over time have lost everything. So they're gonna start they're gonna start pawning things basically. <laughs> we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So let's talk about this aspect of control and, and Makoro over Victorian. Um, he's the one who flat out says, blind to the strings that make you dance. And that, of course, Victorian bristles at that. He's like, I don't, you know, no one controls me. No one makes me dance. <laughs> Or actually, Victorian, it seems like there's a lot of people making you dance. Euron, Makoro himself, the horn <clears throat> itself. Yeah, the gods, because this guy is about as superstitious as it gets. And he keeps adding gods to worship to his, you know, his roster. <laughs> so mm. um, knowing that Victorian is a threat to Danny and that Makoro is most likely sees Danny as the literal savior of the world, given Bonero calling her that and being responsible for dispatching Makoro. So he thinks she's Azor Ahai, so he's not going to let anything happen to her, assuming mm-hmm. uh, that's all on the up and up. With that in mind, he gave Victorian this firearm, maybe just to make mm-hmm. sure Victorian didn't die so that he himself could get to Slaver's Bay without this fleet collapsing. But again bringing it back up the topic of, of control and manipulating Makoro. What do you, like, how do you find balance or understanding or how do you, what do you make of these different connections? What do you think is the strongest influence and how um, do you think Makoro <clears throat> is controlling him? What do you think of that idea? And, and just the, in general, these, these things that are manipulating him. So, <laughs> I mean, obviously when we're thinking about Victorian's firearm, the number one thing we all think about is uh, the fireworms yeah. from Aurea Targaryen. Yes. So did he put, if he put fireworms in Victorian's arm, like is this sort, are we supposed to understand this is something like alien where at some point they're just going to erupt and destroy him and that's kind of like what Quaro's, like maybe that could explain why he's, why Victorian's thought processes are getting so scattered and strange. Maybe he's oh. like becoming a fireworm. That is something that like Ooh. George has written about before, like, a, a transition of one of a character into some sort of magical or horrific thing. And as they do it, their thought processes get a little bit crazier. But on a more like... He's like less a host. Fan- oh, yeah. yeah, like a host. On a less fantasy level, though, what Makoro's doing is he's the first person ever to basically worship Victorian. <laughs> he's, treating him like, he's treating him like a god. He's treating him like the savior of the world. He's telling Victorian everything he wants to hear. He's treating him like, like how Victorian sees other people treat Euron. And I think that's part of the <laughs> yeah. power fantasy that's going mm. into it is that, you know, he's a, an obsessively magical character who's telling Victorian, you will save the world. You will get everything you want. I see it in the flames. 
And after everything that's happened with Euron, you can see how that's probably very attractive to him. And it seems to be reinforcing whatever kind of psychosis that Victorian has against his brother. Nice. Well said. And yeah, so what do you think Makoro's goal is, or as far as if we look a little bit ahead, what is his, you think, as far as getting from the fleet to Daenerys? This is a part I struggle with. I really wonder how he's going to make this transition. Do you have any thoughts on how that might happen? That one really baffles me, like how he gets from point A to point B. Maybe it's just something we can just leave up to George's imagination. It's not important to try to suss out, but it's definitely something that I'm just like, oh. One weird thing about Makoro is that he knows their ship when they leave with, I think, with Tyrion, is they will not make to Slaver's Bay. Like, he's aware for some reason the ship's going to be wrecked. So it's possible that Makoro kind of sees himself as, like, somebody that's sort of surfing on the uh, the waves of fate. Like, yeah. everything's leading towards a certain place, which he has seen in the flames. Um, very different idea from Melisandre, who sees herself as somebody that can actively change it. But I really do think that Makoro's basically just just saying, like, oh, you picked me up? I, you're going to the same place? I will use you for as long as it takes for me to get there. Like Fate the fact rider. that he's he's yeah. changed out his red robes for wearing Victor for wearing Greyjoy sails. I think it's just Makoro's like, I have nowhere else to go. You are my only ride. Therefore, I will say whatever you want, Big V, as long <laughs> as we v. get there. <laughs> that is a great catch, actually, the symbolism of him wearing the Greyjoy sails. We we thought we yeah. when we analyzed that in Valoritas, we more focused on the the sigil, like the fact that he is mm -hmm. now a Kraken or wearing Kraken garb, even though he's, you know, not really serving, necessarily serving Kraken goals. But that's a great catch, like thinking about the fact that it's the sail, which is the, the engine of the ship, really, <laughs> in this case. He's so. just a ride. Victorian's just a ride to Makoro. Yeah. Who's the real captain of the ship, right? Who's the real? <laughs> that's great. Yeah. I like that a lot. <laughs> Makoro's also puzzling because of what he does say and what he doesn't say. Why, if he's just going to betray Victorian or just sees him as a vehicle to get to Danny, why bother telling him to claim the horn? Why bother going through the motions with you need to rub blood on it and all that? What's <laughs> the point of that, right? Like, couldn't he just say, blow the horn and it's going to do this and that? Like, this is a step that also puzzles me. Uh, so along with that, it, it, but it could be related to this topic we've been speaking to indirectly, and we can now speak more directly to it, the idea that the horn itself isn't just for giving him ambition. It's literally ensorcelled him. Like there's actual mm -hmm. magic affecting him. Let's, let's have this quote real quick. For half a heartbeat, he wanted nothing so much as to sound the horn himself. Euron was a fool to give me this. It is a precious thing and powerful. With this, I'll win the sea stone chair and then the iron throne. With this, I'll win the world. This is, I mean, he's not a passive guy, but compare that to his Kingsmood speech where he's like, you'll get more of what Balon gave you. That's it. You know, like that's, this, this is the same guy that's like, I'm going to conquer the world. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> something's changed. Uh, he's had the horn this whole time, right? He, he brought it with him. But he's only later in the voyage, he's starting to think about it and use it. And then once he starts thinking about it and using it, it's like snowballs. It's just the momentum picks up massively. He's also possessive of it, right? When they're, after they, he tells the thralls what the deal is, he doesn't want anyone else to take it. 
right? He's like, no, I'll leave it here with me, which is kind of strange. Like, they're on a ship. Yeah. Was someone going to steal I'll it? In, I'll stay in my uh, in my room with my horn. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about it. Just don't knock. Knock so, first. I'm going to put a rubber band on the door. So that's, in a way, that's even more telling because it's one thing for the ambition because that you can write off as human. You know, just like he's just... He's seduced by the the power of it all. But this weird paranoia and possessiveness doesn't really, that doesn't necessarily, that's a different sort of instinct, I think. That to me mm. perhaps even more suggests the magic. So yeah, that it's very telling, isn't it? It's very, very strange, especially, uh, I mean, we joked about it while you were reading it, but yeah, the George is using the word precious here. I think he's very much um, trying to make you think of Gollum and, and the One Ring. I think one thing that especially lines up when you're talking about the one ring from Lord of the Rings and the dragon binder here is that the ring itself tempts everybody, right? Everybody that everybody wants it. Everybody thinks they're going to put it on their finger and they're going to become the new Dark Lord of Mordor and they're going to rule the world. I mean, it even tempts a Galadriel and Gandalf to yeah, people to who are good. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But we know the the ring itself doesn't really do anything. It just makes you turn invisible. That's its main power. <laughs> and that's, I wonder if the George is calling on that here with Dragonbiter, because you, we, you read this quote. He said, with this, I'll win the sea stone chair and then the, and then the iron throne and then the world. How? How? Yeah. What does it do? <laughs> what does it do, Victorian? Do you even know? Is this like, I think it's a direct uh, parallel to the One Ring itself that, especially we were talking about this before we went live, but if you think about if the Dragonbinder itself is the One Ring, then you look at uh, Euron's sigil and it has the big flaming eye on it. I wonder if that's something you're supposed to be thinking about, that the One Ring only serves Sauron, also Dragonbinder only serves Euron. And that may be what Makoro is trying to warn him about. I actually thought about this while you were talking about it. And it's the idea that Makoro may recognize that Dragonbinder, if Victarion blows it, will serve Euron, which means it will hurt Daenerys. And if he wants to help Daenerys, Therefore, it's in his best interest to make sure it's the dumb as a stump Victorian gets the dragons rather than Euron. You can deal with Victorian way easier than Euron, especially if, let's say, you put yeah. fireworms inside of them. <laughs> or if you've already, like, established mind meld or something, if you already, yeah. like, the firearm gives him some sort of control. That's a great point. Yeah, you really, yeah. If you're Makoro and if you can't stop the horn from being blown, which is possible, that might be what he's considered here. He's like, well, I can't stop it from being blown, so I need to at least make sure the right person blows it uh, to make this easier to deal with. The lesser of two Someone people, I can easily so. shove into the water and let him drown in his armor. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Along those lines, it's a good segue to a quote from Tyrion II, also wins a winner, which gives us some interesting symbolism that I think relates here, especially to Euron and the dragons. This comes right after Jorah stabs the Yunkish Lord, which basically seals the deal on them switching back to Danny's side. And the description of the dead body is where we get some pretty heavy symbolism here. He lay face down on the carpet in a welter of red blood and oily black roses. Sir Jorah wrenched his sword free of the dead man's <clears throat> neck. Blood ran down its fullers. The white Sivas dragon ended up at Tyrion's feet. He scooped it off the carpet and wiped it on his sleeve. But some of the Yunkish blood had collected in the fine grooves of the carving. So the pale wood seemed veined with red. Okay, hmm. so that's a lot, right? Because you got red blood <laughs> and black roses and you got a white wooden dragon with blood. The, right, the red and black could, is, could be Targaryen colors, but those are also Euron's colors. And as you were just saying, 
with the eye and the Sauron vibes and then black roses are kind of like black crowns and or the fate of the reach, you know, the Tyrell roses are kind mm-hmm. of doomed uh, with the onset of winter and Euron. The white Sivas dragon, like the white dragon could be a symbol of Viserion, who is the actual white dragon and is referred to sure. as the white dragon repeatedly in these chapters. But a white wooden dragon with red veins sounds like Blood Raven or a Weirwood tree, does it not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, kind of, kind of heavily on that one. Yeah, and the blood seeping into the fine grain of the wood is pretty similar to Victorian rubbing his blood into the horn. So, oh, what do you think about, about, that. about so all creepy. that? That's crazy, huh? That's a that's a pile of symbolism all at once. It's one of those things where I almost wonder. <laughs> Does, is there a plan for it, or is George doing his gardening thing? Because we know uh, these chapters, Tyrion and Victorian, they were written a long time ago, right? These were mm-hmm. among the first to be previewed. So we know that he often does these things. I, that's one of my favorite things about the House of the Undying, since we were talking about the Warlocks, is that it always makes sense looking backwards, but going forwards from it is very hard. I imagine all these yeah. things will make perfect sense once they happen on the page. He's just an expert at leaving himself options so that he can then pluck them into the story he wants. I mean, Viserion well, makes a lot of sense. I don't know how Bloodraven would be involved with this, but it's hard not either. to think of Weirwoods and him with that. <laughs> yeah. It is random to think of Bloodraven here, but White Wooden Dragon with red veins? Like, oh, sure. what else can you think of? <laughs> it's just Very too true. on the nose. Okay, so let's, let's have a real, like, a real tough question, which is <laughs> predictions for what's actually going to happen. With the horn, when the horn is blown, considering all these things we just said about what Euron might want from it, how Euron might be the master of it, how Makoro might be trying to mitigate harm to his to his savior, all that stuff, what are your general predictions or thoughts on that? I think it starts with the idea that Makoro and but basically George planted in our mind. That, that Euron, for some reason, is the master of this horn. Yeah. He says, essentially, that it doesn't matter your brother didn't blow it. It matters that he's the master of it. He, you have to be some kind of blood sacrifice to it. I mean, it's Valyrian, so I'm assuming you have to kill somebody or like do yeah. something gruesome with it to make it your master. And it seems like Victorian's trying to do that with the rubbing of the, his blood on the, uh, on the horn. Maybe that's like his perception of what a blood sacrifice is, but... Again, Victorian's also the guy that got made fun of by monkeys. And he actually mentions him in this chapter <laughs> where he's like, everyone I'm going to get, I'm going to get revenge on. Also, those damn monkeys. They're going to the hate the cedars. sound of his horn. I'll show them. <laughs> it's like on the Isle of Cedars, they'll hear it and they'll know. It's like, all right, man. So whatever, whatever Coral meant with blood sacrifice, I'm going to guess Victorian didn't grasp it. So yeah. probably at this point, the horn still belongs to Euron, whatever that means. Uh, when we look at the king's moot, there wasn't a lot of effects when it was blown. Essentially, the people that heard it essentially just felt like their brains were on fire. Yeah. Like it was like the worst sound they've ever heard. Their bodies are vibrating. Um, they couldn't stand it. And if you want to look at a more fantasy perspective, like what did it do? It seems to have essentially like put everyone there in a trance mm-hmm. because everyone just kind of goes for Euron. But then, like a few weeks later, they're on the Shield Islands and everyone's like, that was a bad idea. Like, I don't know if we should have elected Euron. Roderick the Reader, <laughs> who previously was silent, basically, when Euron was being elected, now is standing up to him when everyone was terrified of him after blowing the horn. So it may be some kind of like, if it 
if it forces a dragon to essentially obey you, then it has to have some kind of like mind control aspect to it. But if he blows it at the start of the the battle itself, I mean, I don't think it's going to do anything to the people other than just be like, that sounds awful. Why are you doing that? Hey, cut that out, man. That's really loud. Just like, <laughs> knock it off. In terms of the dragons, I mean, <laughs> I don't think George would layer in the idea again from Makoro. I mean, Euron said it first, that it will bring you the dragons, but then Makoro essentially backs that up if it's not going to have an effect on them in some way. Mm. Although my personal favorite idea that I've heard about what it will do is it'll just make them angry and they're just going to swoop down and then just eat the guys that blew it. <laughs> yeah. That'd be my favorite. I kind of like that idea, except for the problem that Makoro is on that same ship. So if the dragons yeah. were to come towards the source of the horn, Makoro would get baked along with whoever else. So that just doesn't necessarily work unless Makoro just like but jumps overboard again and survives <laughs> in the water. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. It's it's hard to say. George has really cloaked this. And that's kind of a, a long-running thing in the series. There are other magical horns. And it's just like, what do they do? Yeah. I don't know. We had that one destroyed up at the wall before ever like finding out if it could do anything. We have this legendary Celtigar horn that can summon a kraken. Now, you reminded me of something when you brought up the King's Moot, which is that there was a Blood Raven reference there as well. A couple of mm. weird Blood Raven references that pop up. For example, and of course, we have a reason for, we, we have an overarching reason for Bloodraven and Euron to have a connection, which is the, the whole failed Greenseer theory. <laughs> but here's what I mean. Uh, two references. One is Victorian describing the scream as a thousand screams rolled into one. <laughs> so a thousand <laughs> screams in one. Wow. Uh, and another <laughs> one is the seagull. That's the, 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 the very peculiar seagull that's watching the king's moot and does not react to the horn. <laughs> There's a seagull just chilling yeah. that gets noticed a few times and the horn is blown. Everyone's like, oh my God, that's the worst sound I've ever heard. And then like a minute later, the seagull's just chilling still. Like, shouldn't the <laughs> bird be like freaked out by that horn just like everybody else? It's like, no. So that made me suspicious that Bloodraven was watching the ceremony. Like, well, this is an interesting. Let's see what happens at the king's <laughs> mode here. You know, like that seems like something he might care about. Just one other thing with like, what does Dragonbinder do? The Targaryens don't have one of these. This right. is something that the the warlocks maybe had or Valyria and they've been riding dragons for hundreds of years at this point so whatever it is it can't be super critical to the process right yeah it might be something outside of the process it might be the kind of thing that the something that was developed by the non-dragon riding families to try to like maybe get in on that action or something mm. like you say it's very well concealed by George because every scenario we consider seems to have a significant flaw with someone's ambitions like they wouldn't do that or why would they want this and something so either we haven't touched on the right scenario or george's imagination is just bigger than we can even conceive of entirely possible <laughs> or very possible or Oof. um yeah or there's just we just can't conceive or he's just hidden it so well that we just can't we just can't see we, we might be like ah <laughs> when it happened like ah why did we not guess that it might be like three people in the world like, down if it didn't do anything like if, <laughs> if it literally did nothing and just annoyed everybody like i think that would be a waste of the narrative space he's giving to this dragon horn like he's put a, a ton of effort into developing it so it's going to do something yeah but i mean knows what you're right because it's also been set up like where do these legends come from if it that that say that because it's not like it's a one-time thing there's multiple sources that repeat this line about dragon horns 
having this impact. Even Danny thinks about them, like them existing. Mm-hmm. She, she thinks about them existing and how her family doesn't have one or that she doesn't have one, you know, when she's out there on the Dothraki Sea with, with Drogon. We know that there's other chapters that are taking place at roughly the same time. And we know that we have evidence that the, at least the beginning of this plan is successful. The Ironborn have landed and are attacking some of the Yunkai. But there's no hint that the horn's been blown yet. You'd think that if it, we had gotten to that point, you'd think Barristan or Tyrion would be like, what the hell was that? Like, what is that sound? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I'm really curious what it sounds like from a distance because we've heard it close up, you know, and now I'm like, it might be one of these things where it's like the comet where we see a variety of reactions to it from multiple chapters. Not nearly as many, of course, but uh, more mm. than one would be interesting. So here's a little... Has Victarion been sighted? Uh, Has he been sighted on the beach yet? Not him specifically, but the uh, the Kraken flags have been. They know it's the Greyjoys. Um, like Barrison so he's like, he's back on the boat, trying very hard not to blow it. Like I bet yes. he's standing three feet behind the three guys, and he's just like thinking about it. It's like okay, they're each going to blow it once, but if I blow it three times myself, won't that be awesome? Maybe become king of the world. No, no, no. I have to let those three guys do it, but I really want to do it. Yeah, isn't that just more evidence of it? He being should be leading. Sorcerous? That's Victorian. He should be leading with his axe yeah. the fight, but he's not. Which tells you he's probably back obsessed with the horn. Yeah, and he's like, and he, like you said, he's tempted to blow it. Like what? You saw what happened to the dude who blowed it. How are you tempted yeah. to blow this thing when you saw this guy's lungs turn to <laughs> sand and ash? Like, I'll do that. Yeah, that looks good. It looks fun. <laughs> like what? Like, and it, he hated the sound it. of it too. It sounds horrible. It's like Victorian. Something's going on with you, my man. Yeah. Um, I think it's pretty clear that he is not going to like. It's I forget the name of it, but basically. If a character tells you their plan, it's not going to work. So Victorian's plan is he's going to let these three guys blow it, and then he's going to take the dragons. Obviously, that's not going to happen. He's going to do it himself. Maybe after like, I bet it's going to be like the, the first moment that one of the guys like literally puts his lips to it. He's going to get like insanely jealous. He's <laughs> like his lips are getting all blistered. He, I'm so yeah, he's like, oh, that could be me. <laughs> I could be burning from the inside. I'll be so good. <laughs> Like, that's a thought process. It's so bizarre. It is. Yeah. So that's why you can see y'all why we lean towards magic. Like why there's something like this is not human thinking here. Like this does no. not make sense. And he's not like, yeah, he's dumb, but he's not like self-destructive dumb in that way. He's not like suicidal. I mean, he wants to fight. He like loves battles. So in a sense, you could say that's suicidal, but he doesn't perceive it that way. He doesn't perceive mm-hmm. it as like, oh, I'm going into like, I might die here. He sees it as, oh, if I die, I'm going to the afterlife to be even more glorious, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> he's, he's got all these, yeah. he's got it all sewn up here. Yeah, he's not very, it, it, it's, it comes from not being introspective. If someone, if someone who knows themselves well would realize that they're behaving different, it's like, you know what, I don't, I'm not myself lately. But no, nah, Victorian introspection isn't something they really teach on the Iron Islands. <laughs> it kind of actually reminds me a lot of, I recently did the patron episode on Sand Kings. Oh, cool. What a great story. The process here sounds a lot like Simon Cress when the Ma's starting to control his mind. Yeah. Like when all of a sudden he says like really self-destructive, things don't make sense. And then he reflects on him and is like, wow, that really didn't make sense. Was that even my thoughts? It seems like the same kind of things happen in Victorian here. Because George is showing us, I think especially the the poisonous gifts that now Victorian thinks are awesome. That sounds so much like Cress and his relationship with the oh, Sand Kings. Very good point. Yeah, because he also totally loves the Dusky Woman now. Like, I mean, he doesn't treat yeah, her. Yeah, he like, hated her. He was like, "Oh, she's the worst. She's a spy. She's going to kill me or something terrible." And it's like, 
No, she's great. Now I she's his now. therapist. Like he tells her everything. Yeah, yeah like I, I can, I know I can speak to you, dusty woman. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. So that's a, that's a really good point there. This this sort of like loving things that he used to hate with with very little having changed, just his perception of them. Funny, interesting note here. And let's talk symbolism briefly here. Blow the horn three times. Each thrall sounds at once. Uh, and as you raised before, there's probably some sort of death involved, some sort of killing blood sacrifice involved in claiming the horn, which Victorian hasn't really done, but Euron probably has. Meanwhile, some, so something's going to happen with re, in result to the dragons when this horn is blown. Maybe they'll fly all the way to Euron. Maybe, like I said, they'll get annoyed. Maybe it'll be nothing. Maybe it's something we to- haven't <coughs> suggested at all. Option D, <coughs> E, F, whatever. But certainly a possibility is them coming to the horn. That's supposed to be what's, what's happening. That's what we've been told is going to happen or could happen for a dragon horn. Meanwhile, Barristan has informed some of his men as part of their battle plan that when he sounds his horn three times to charge towards him and he is wielding a dragon banner and wearing a dragon winged helm and is riding Danny's silver horse. It's kind of like a similar, it's kind of like an inversion of that. Like blow the horn three times, go towards the dragon. In this case, Barristan. And in the other case, the, horn, the dragon horn gets blown three times and the actual dragons go. So that's kind of neat. Flick commenter Meg had a great take here that said, blowing the horn three times is perhaps a symbol, a symbol in general for Euron doing the other's work for them. Hmm. Meaning wreaking destruction within the realms, destabilizing things, causing chaos, the kind of things that will break the realm, make it less, uh, the kind of instability that allows an invading force to have a much easier time of things rather than facing a united Westeros. Euron is a major destabilizer. And of course, there's all these theories out there, which I imagine you have some some thoughts on about how Euron himself may be the guy that brings down the wall or at least enables the mm. breaking of the wall, which nothing would enable the others more than that. <laughs> so That's do you have any true. thoughts on any of that stuff, any of that symbolism? Oof. Well, the, the most famous instance of a horn being blown and crazy thing happening afterwards is obviously the... Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna probably fail on pronouncing this, but the Gallerhorn, Gallerhorn from uh, Norse myth. It's okay. the horn of Heimdall, and it's the horn that is blowed right before the start of Ragnarok. Mm. And it seems like George so often mentions Viking and Norse um, religion and uh, like characters within it that I would be surprised if that's not what he's referencing with the, the all the different like horns that are being blown. The horn of winter, like for instance, Ragnarok is symbol is started by. Um, uh, of a years-long winter coming into place. Mm. And it's also a fight to the like the end of the world, which kind of seems like what's going on here. Like the ice giants and then the fire giants all show up. It's like, it's a big mismatch. So I'm guessing that's kind of the general theme of what's going on with these uh, three horns blowing. That's kind of the idea there. But um, the idea that Euron is doing the other's work is I think that's something that's very deep within kind of what's going on with the other story. It's that, they quite clearly cannot do whatever they want to do on their own. If they could, they would have already destroyed the wall. Yeah. If, they could, if they could destroy humanity, if they could do all these kind of things, you know, if you could have, you would have. So they're waiting for somebody to help them. And it seems that their strategy is to use conflict, that they're using the conflict of the wildlings and the Night's Watch in order to essentially break down the defenses, holding them back to essentially spring them from prison. Hmm. I don't know how much urine is tuned into that in terms of there's there's always that weird phrase um what is it he wants to make like an an heir worthy of him whoever him is that strange line like maybe that means the others 
but it, like, there's also people that are super self-destructive. Like Bruce Bolton is destroying the North. I don't think he's doing that to help the others. It's just like yeah. basic human greed and um, and interpersonal conflicts that the others are exploiting that aren't really connected. But Euron, it seems, is more direct. <laughs> if there's yeah. anyone that is doing the others' work, it would be Euron. Everything he's doing seems to be helping them so much, and it seems to be lining up in very bizarre ways. Uh, poor Quentin obviously wrote about this in his Eldritch Apocalypse uh, oh, yeah. essay, which is Chef's Kiss, a it's beautiful, so beautiful yes. thing. Um, <laughs> that, that's but yeah, a, you, you, can't, you can't really overlook the, the three horn blasts and the others, and then it's like, you, Victorian at this point, is he kind of undeadish at this point? Yeah. Like, is, is he kind of like a fire version of the others at this point. Is he a fire white-ish thing? Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that what happened in that strange scene where the narrative shift uh, shifted away from mm-hmm. him to a narrator? Uh, and then he comes yeah. Back and, do you think that you're a related question? Do you think that this isn't a question we prepared? It's something that kind of occurred to me. Do you think <laughs> that Euron perceives the existence of the others or are they some sort of just part of his, to him, he's maybe perceived them in his dreams as something that he sees as more symbolic rather than something literal. Do you think he knows there are these ice demons in the North or, or, or what do you think he perceives mm-hmm. there? So if he got the, there's a lot of theories that Euron is essentially a failed apprentice of Blood Raven. Yeah. So if he did, if you, if you look at Bran's visions, he has been shown the heart of winter, mm-hmm. which is, I guess, supposed to be the others. So it could be that Euron, if he went through the same experiences, maybe came out the other way from Bran. Instead of being terrified of it, he became entranced by the power and the danger of it. But then you look at somebody like Craster, he's ostensibly li- working for the others. They, yeah. are, they are like this. They are, they are buddies. But I don't think he has any real sense of who or what they really are. He's just serving a greater power that, he, that is in some way rewarding him. Yeah, he's like sort of somewhat forced. It's sort of like how, it's sort of like Plato mm-hmm. Aplomo, whereas he's not, Craster wasn't like, oh, yeah, sign me up for that. He's like, well, I guess I have to. Um, some of the other free folk clearly didn't, don't agree with that, but Craster's no. situation may have been different. I don't know. But I'm not defending him. worship the pole gods. Yeah, yeah. So here's another interesting quote about the horn, coming back to that, from Fire and Blood. This is something that we didn't have when this when we first covered this topic long ago. Now, I should, this is a good time for, to plug that real quick. Ashay and I did an episode on the Hellhorn back in 2013. Mm-hmm. And we've, we, some of the things that we've talked about today are touched on briefly, but mostly we focused on more detail as regards to its origin. We, we just get into like what it's made of, the, band, the three different bands, the glyphs, things mm-hmm. like that. But we weren't able to consider a few things like this. For example, again, this fire and blood quote, which says, his grace grieved for Prince Amon until the end of his days, but the old king never dreamed that Amon's death in 92 AC would be like the hell horns of Valyrian legend, bringing death and destruction down on all those who heard their sound. That's kind of a peculiar quote. It doesn't say yeah. anything about dragons, just the horn sages death and destruction uh, on all those who heard it. It's sort of metaphorical, but sort of not. Also keep in mind that he's speaking about Jaehaerys, but it's not a direct quote from Jaehaerys because this is written by Archmaester Gildane. So there's a little bit of, you know, maestering going on here. Uh, but I don't know. That's a strange one. What, is, what does that mean? How, how, why would they, why would hearing it mean you're about to die? It seems like the horn 
conquers a dragon or summons it or brings, you know, if it summons a dragon, then that, that would make sense for bringing death and destruction. But if it's something that binds the dragon to someone else's will, well, that's what is, that seems a in, rather indirect way to say it brings death and destruction if, if it's someone stealing someone else's dragon, right? For all we know, they've stolen a dragon from a bad guy and now it's <laughs> controlled by someone who's going to do less destroying. So I, I don't know what to make of that quote. It seems like George is maybe trying to tell us a little something. It's just a little oblique, a little indirect. Do you have any thoughts on this one? So, like, one way that could be just on a, a non-fantasy level is that, like, if you imagine you're the orcs and you hear the horn of Gondor, <laughs> that's probably a sound that you very much hate to hear. True. Like, you might call it a hell horn because every time it's blown, you know, you are absolutely boned. Like, the men of Gondor are about to smoke your ass. <laughs> uh, so, it could be something like that. Everyone else perceives the, the horns of battle, which seems to be a consistent theme across all cultures, or most of them, that they blow horns to start battle. So it could be something like that. But the idea that's a hell horn, and the, the effect we see at the king's moot from blowing one, it, it has to do something. Like, if it, if it summons dragons, like we know that on Dragonstone, not all the dragons were claimed, obviously. Right. There were wild dragons, so maybe it's a way to, like, Perhaps there were wild dragons all across Valyria and you blow the horn in order to start an attack and then they go back pissed about it later and they're like, oh, you blew the horn and made me do your thing, you dicks. I'm going to go back to that later now. But for the time frame, maybe that's how you get an army of dragons if you don't have enough riders for them. Yeah. And it makes sense that there would be a lot of legend and like false stories about what these things do. It's probably not something that there's a lot of data on. And of course, whatever <laughs> yeah. data on dragon horns there was would mostly have been lost with the destruction of Valyria. Now I want to bring up a, a related fact here that's important. And you, you mentioned that the Targaryens don't have one or that if they had one, they left it back home. They didn't <laughs> bring it, which they probably didn't have one. That would be a very strange thing to leave behind. And it also makes sense. Maybe the, maybe the Targaryens and the Dragonlord families were against the existence of such things. It'd be like, hey, we're the we're the forty families. We don't want anyone else getting into our club. Anything that allows dragon them. stealing is yeah. <laughs> it's like they don't want a wealth tax to be <laughs> implemented because mm -hmm. they're the, the most most uh, impacted by it. No dragon taxes on the dragon lords, but the Targaryens. <laughs> there's not a single example of a Targaryen that we know of dying in the process of trying to tame a dragon. Certainly Targaryens have been killed by dragons in war, like one Targaryen versus another, and certainly things like Rhaenyra being eaten by her, you know, half-brother's dragon. But that was mm -hmm. after being prompted, right? The dragon at first didn't even want to do it. Um, and in, in terms of like an actual failure, like a dragon, one guy tries to tame a dragon and it eats him, there's nothing at all like that. Not even, not even like a wounding. We've got the wild dragon cases, plenty of deaths there, but Targaryen... Trying to claim a dragon and failing and getting hurt, not a single example of that. So, like, the, the closest we get is Joffrey Velaryon trying to ride a dragon that wasn't his, and the dragon shook him off. And, like, the dragon didn't even, like, hurt him directly. It just sh shook him off, right? And that just happened to mm -hmm. lead to him plunging to his death. But he would have shooken him off over, like, five feet off the ground, too, probably, if he had the chance. So, that, to me, is like, hmm, yes, that's interesting. Why... What, the horns uh, aren't part of any of this. So, yeah, I don't know. It's very, it's another, perhaps just another smokescreen around all this just for George to can maybe try to keep us from figuring it out. It could be. Anything to add to that? Well, similar uh, kind of example for Valyrian artifacts that seem to simulate something that already exists elsewhere in magic. A glass candle is basically 
artificial green site. That's basically what it does. Yeah. It allows you to yeah. invade dreams. It allows you to see places you can't. That's what we see from Blood Raven. He's telling Bran. Everything he tells Bran, you can do with a glass candle. So if that's the pattern that George is doing here, that they found a way to artificially manufacture a naturally occurring magical thing, I guess. Hmm, okay. One other possibility is that Makoro is angling to see the horn get destroyed. He's taking act, taking oh. actions, making, giving advice that will lead to the destruction of the horn because he doesn't want it used against Andy's dragons. I guess that's possible. I'm not sure how that would come about. Maybe the dragon comes to his ship and torches the ship and Makoro is ready <laughs> to jump overboard. It seems a little like action-oriented, but hey, you know, that, that doesn't preclude the possibility. Um, hey, he's he's lived in the sea before, and this time he'd be inside a land. So, hey, <laughs> I don't know. But maybe right before Victorian blows it, like he looks over and Macquarie's like, "I gotta go. I gotta go do something. I gotta run an errand. I'll be right back, guys. Uh, I'll see you in a little bit." I, you know, these robes. I don't know. I gotta get them looked at. You blow the horn. It'll be cool. I'll be right back. Certainly, that's a moment to escape, right? Everyone's like, "God, that sound!" <laughs> They're all just like bent over, covering their ears, and Macquarie's like, "Peace. <laughs> I'm out." <laughs> yeah. Let's take a few questions here. A couple of them, uh, a good batch is built up while we've been discussing oh. this first part of stuff from the TKOK Podcast Network. Great to see Magic Joe on History of Westeros. Thank you for that, Tommy. Shout out to the TKOK Podcast Network. Y'all are doing great work over there. And Tommy is a great friend of the show and one of the History of Westeros mods. So great shout out to him. And he's happy to have to see you on today, Joe. Isn't oh. that cool? <laughs> Thank you. Makes me feel great. <laughs> we have Lord Commander Namian Darklin. Can't stick around for the whole stream, but looking forward to the podcast. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Lord Commander Namian. We'll keep it going. Dornish Dames says, Tyrion knows a lot about dragon lore. I'm curious what his reaction will be to the dragon horn being blown. That's a great question. You know, honestly, oh. I haven't thought about that. Just He knows about dragons. He's the one that picks up the dragon piece that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. But like, does, is he going to recognize that? He's going to be like, is that a dragon horn? <laughs> That's a really good question. Honestly, I haven't thought about it. I've thought about later Tyrion and dragons and all that, and I'm sure you have too. Mm -hmm. Oh, if he sees it too. Oh. That too. This says, He's like, oh, wait. <laughs> wow. Because Yeah, because if he sees the dragons react to it, that's going to maybe even, if he suspects the sound and then sees the dragons react, that might you know, pique his curiosity or, or put him on the right track to figuring it out. That's true. Um, There's yeah. another character that's on their way. There's a legitimate expert in magic and Valyrian lore, and that is Archmaester Marwyn. Yeah. If he shows up and he sees it, what would he make of it? If there's anyone that knows about it, it probably would be Marwyn. Yeah, that's a great question. Marwyn's role in all this is just another huge variable that throws the whole thing off. It really matters what order these things happen in, right? Like, mm. if, if Marwyn comes, like, much later... Then, Much later, he's going to be. Yeah. Then who knows? Like maybe he doesn't even make it because the Volantine fleet is is a, an issue, which is part of why this whole thing is on turbo mode. Like Victorian's like, okay, whatever we do, it's got to be before the Volantis fleet gets here because there's like 300 mm -hmm. ships, and he's like, well, I'm brave, but I'm not stupid. Well, and uh, we would say we would insert the word that in parentheses. You're not that stupid. <laughs> you are. Stupid. You're <laughs> just not that stupid. He might be. <laughs> So oh, one character that's, that's going to be really interesting to, to like, if he makes it to the end of it, what would Barristan make of this thing? Would he just like poke it or just like put yeah. it in the corner and like throw a rug over it? Like, I don't know what the hell this thing is. Like, I'm not dealing with this. Let like, Danny would it start to do with that? Him? Yeah, just, you never know. <laughs> yeah, if, Tyrion. Wow, what's he going to Tyrion could like completely freak out and be like, oh my God. 
where did the Ironborn get that? You know, like, what the <laughs> hell? He's going to be so confused if he figures out what's going on. And also that that just speaks to as well to like, how is it going to affect people from a distance? Mm-hmm. Like, we saw what happened at the King's Moot, but like, what about, you know, as Victorian says, let the monkeys on the, on the aisles like hear it. So people inside Marine will probably hear it and be like, what was that? Like Miss Sande, of course, she has amazing hearing, right? We've noticed that about her hearing the brick scratching and all that. She's going to be like mm-hmm. inside one of the pyramids on the lower level and be like, huh, what was that? <laughs> That's not a good sound. I really didn't like that. Just on like a, a structural level though, we, yeah, as you said, as we were going through like, What's going to happen with the horn in the battle? We know the outcome of the battle. So the out, yeah, the effect of the horn has to be to subvert that somehow. It has to make it worse in a way we're not predicting. So yeah, it's some sort of like a chaos that comes from it. The dragon's attacking like like mad beast or something like that. It's got to do something that's going to surprise us. Otherwise, yeah. you don't cloak it in mystery. That's a good point. Yeah, because at the end of Barrison 2, he is sure that the battle has been won. He's like, we've got them. It's like the hammer and the anvil. We've got them. We've got them. And he seems to be right. And with his experience, you tend to be like, yeah, I mean, if Barristan says it's over, it's probably over. Uh, Especially given we know that the Tatter Prince is free, you know, turned on the sellsword or turned on the young Kish as well. Mm -hmm. So like all these things that were expected to happen that were in Danny's, would be good for Danny's side, all pretty much did happen. Everything pretty much worked out. As a point, you're right. Maybe that's a reason to think other things won't work out. Um, um, Ashe is noting that Tyrion and Barrison have seen dragon horns with skulls. That's true from the um, from the collection the er, from the Targaryen collection. That's true. Okay, they point, wouldn't have been in the basement when Barrison saw them. But yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. They were still in the throne room. That's a great point. Yeah. yeah. So they would know. They would be like, "That is indeed a dragon horn with some stuff added to it, <laughs> some bands and all that." No, oh, Ashe asked, "Would Victorian ever have been to King's Landing?" I no, I don't think so. I would think not, but it's possible that he just went there. Yeah, he's same. Hmm. He sounds like he's seen dragon skulls before. It's possible he's gone? had to pay homage as, as a Greyjoy brother, like Balon had to go there or something. I don't know. He bent the knee, but we think that happened at Pike. But maybe I don't know. Maybe they made him travel all the way around. Good question. I'm not really sure. Yeah, uh, Euron wouldn't have gone. So it would have been Balon Victorian. Yeah, yeah, that's and maybe especially maybe, since they would have left Aaron home. Maybe probably. A, <laughs> maybe a way of domination over the Ironborn because Victorian's the one that lost the battle to Stannis, so that could be like a sign of submission for Robert. Maybe that's why it would have been done. Good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I didn't think of it that way. Yeah, a very good point. Yeah, usually the military leaders bending the knee is more important than just the other brothers. Yeah, mm-hmm. the yeah the Iron Captain and all. Good. Maybe, point. He, maybe he has seen Balerion Skull. That's yeah. totally possible. I guess. Uh, Max L says, if Victorian is dead, who takes up the Iron Fleet after him? <laughs> Great question. It's something we have for later in the document, but we can discuss it now because we're very close to that point. That's one of the reasons I'm skeptical that he'll die right away. Uh, mm-hmm. I do think he's doomed eventually, but if he lives through the battle, um, and of course, again, it makes sense that he lives given that everything is going so well. Like, who's going to kill him when the battle is basically won? Well, maybe a dragon. But still, point being, <laughs> if he does die, it's not like a lot of other Ironborn characters have been cast, and they just want to go home. No, I figure there's a decent chance there's some of them just scatter and turn pirate if there's if they're leaderless. But they might fight alongside. They might just there's an opportunity for Danny to win them over. Maybe uh, the difficulty there is we've seen that they're not big fans of women leaders. But Nina made a suggestion that we considered in a different light for Daenerys. 
uh, and crack club point back when we were with nimble dick in and brienne and all that we just we discussed how nimble dick brings up visenya and how visenya is the reason crack club point is our good dragon men so they clearly don't have a problem with female leaders there they're good dragons men that are willing to follow a queen so that was a good reason for us to predict that the crack claw people will take danny's side if they take anyone's side similarly here maybe danny is able to pull a visenya and just look the ironborn respects strength after all and if she comes in on on drogon burning ships destroying things they might submit to that even even the most patriarchal kind of dudes could submit to that kind of overwhelming power. What do you think? Do you think they would follow a woman? I wouldn't be surprised, especially that they've lost so many of their ships that maybe they would just respect the power itself of Danny and her dragons. Like that sort that makes a lot of sense. But I wouldn't overlook the fact that Makoro has tried very, very hard to integrate himself with that culture in a very short amount of time. Hmm. Like we don't see a lot from them. And I know they're skeptical of Makoro's power, but perhaps he's able to hoodwink the rest, the remaining Ironborn in the way he has Victorian and like emerge R'hllor, Drown God kind of thing. I mean, he is literally wearing their sails at this point. So if yeah. there's going to be a kind of a popular, powerful leader, and actually all the other men are scared of him. That's mm. the thing that's, that's very important. The rest of the Ironborn are terrified of Makoro. So... If yeah, there's no Victorian, really maybe he could step in as sort of and like mimic the Iron Captain in order to deliver him to Danny or something like that. Like, yeah. look, I brought you ships and men. Yeah, that's a, yeah. This is really another just a subtopic throughout all this. That's just another one that's hard to perceive because yeah, what if Victorian lives, and survives a battle, and Danny's just not there, but he's still on this timeline. He's still like, well, we got to get out of here before the Valentine shows up. But if Danny's not even here, and the Horn doesn't have the desired effect. Well, then what? <laughs> they just wait? Mm -hmm. Do they just chill and wait for Danny to return and pretend <laughs> to be on? Like, Barristan accepts them because they showed up and helped, and as far as they know, he hasn't turned on them. But then Makoro will just tell. Makoro's like, yeah, by the way, don't trust that guy. He's against it. He's trying <laughs> to steal Daenerys. You know, hey, I'm, I was pretending, but, like, honestly, I'm not with them. Yeah, I'm wearing their, their sails, but seriously, I'm not with them. <laughs> You know, I, I just came here with them. I just showed up to the party with them. I don't know them. Yeah. They're just my ride. <laughs> they were my ride, exactly. I, I tried to take a different <laughs> ship, really. I did. I, the widow on the waterfront sent me. They made me wear this. This wasn't even my idea. Listen, <laughs> I Danny, had this cool staff that shot green fire out of its a mouth. Really cool I swear. Staff. From Curtis Franks, if the warlocks did have the horn, then why did they not use it in the second book against Danny? Or did they? That's a good question. Maybe they didn't have it yet, or maybe they were waiting for the dragons to be bigger. Yeah, that is a good question. I, I would assume they just didn't have it yet, but it is a it is a fair question. What do you think? You have a, another idea there? So they seem pretty certain that the whole tr uh, giving a teenage girl essentially liquid acid would be enough to get her to do whatever they wanted, which is kind of <laughs> true. It wasn't for Drogon. She basically walked into their arms and they were like starting to attack her mm. and like licking her eye. And it was really creepy. It was working. Yes. So maybe they didn't think they needed that. But also there is a fact, if you look, if you read back the House of the Undying Visions, Danny does hear strange music. Uh, she calls it piping and like otherworldly sounds as she's going through there. Maybe that's mm. a hint that that's kind of what that was. That's a Lovecraftian reference. Exactly. The exact, the piping, exact that's what I think of, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, there's no reason to think that they weren't luring her there. Maybe she did, 
Maybe, actually, this is kind of funny. What if Dragonbinder sounds different to Targaryens? What if it sounds like music to them? Mm, wow, yeah, maybe they actually like it. Wow, I never thought about that. Man, that'd be kind of interesting. That'd be that a is interesting. twist. Wow, that's a great idea. Hmm, definitely worth marinating on that. What if they like it? Wow. I mean, I that, mean that's the one way you could use to surprise us because we've already seen it makes everyone else hate it. Targaryens? dragons maybe to them it's like a lullaby yeah maybe they just go to bed they're like ah that's so yeah. relaxing soothing horror. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the sound of a thousand screams i mean hey they sound. like lying on like hot coals so yeah that's yeah <laughs> so why not yeah. they are literally magic so who knows they find uh yeah they'd find black metal to be soothing yeah. <laughs> 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 let's see next question is matthew dominique what do you think happens to the dragon under the spell of the horn if the person who controls the horn dies? This might have a simple answer. Maybe not. I would. Maybe it's just the the kind of like when a regular dragon rider dies, its dragon becomes wild again or just becomes riderless. Um, maybe it's easier to claim <clears throat> the second time because if they've already had a rider, that's we haven't. I don't think we have enough data on that. There's not very. There's only a couple of dragons that have had more than two riders. That's tough. I. I that's where my Mine goes when I see this question. Do you have a, a different take or what do you think about that? Uh, my mind instantly goes to um, Vermeer Sixkins. When he loses control of his animals, they essentially try and kill him. Mm. So yes. maybe it's something like that. I mean, that's the only example yeah. I can think of in the books where it's something sort of like a dragon bond. And when it ends, the animals go nuts. They try and kill you or they try and run away. Mm. Ashea writes, maybe a dragon needs time to recover like a mourning period oh um, because it's yeah because like, if the bond is strong enough especially if there's a magical component to it it might have a yeah it might have an, an impact on their psyche that's a that's a good idea yeah that happened with Silverwing and vermithor didn't it after jaharis and alisane died they essentially pouted on dragonstone for 50 years Ooh, yeah that's true yeah they did there was that super sad line with one dragon trying to lift the other dragon's wing. That was oof. Yeah, at Tumbleton, I think, right? Yeah, the, yes, exactly. At tum second Tumbleton, yes, because there were two. And yeah, <laughs> that's like amazing. And George is like, how did you do that, George? These vicious, angry, brutal beasts. You made us feel sympathy for them. Max L says, I think the horn ties to the Valyrian armor. They, they have the same runes below the horn and the dragon obeys the dude with the set of armor it corresponds with. That's an interesting idea. I don't, hmm. I, I, we're not sure that they have the same runes, but they do have runes. And I don't know that we have the ability to compare them because Aaron sees the runes and, of course, Aaron <laughs> doesn't see the horn. So we, we don't have a POV that has seen them both uh, yet. Uh, maybe we will. So that, uh, well, I guess Aaron has seen the horn. He just, he didn't note that they have the same exact glyphs, but I'm not sure if he would recognize them. But that's an interesting possibility that they would have similar or identical. If the glyphs are identical, then we might really be onto something. But if they're not, it's so, hmm, interesting. Are they glyphs in High Valyrian? In which case, Tyrion could probably read them. Yeah, they are. Like, Makoro was able to read the ones on on the One Horn. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a good point. And, or ditto, like, Marwyn or, or someone like that. Yeah, so there's a couple of people who could translate that. Good I mean, it's, it's clear Makoro doesn't want to reveal whatever he's learned, but a POV looking at it could definitely tell us what it is mm -hmm. if they wanted to. So George has essentially denied us the information as he normally does for his twists. Yeah. <laughs> Mistman Jones says, what if you blew the horn and a herd of aurochs appeared? <laughs> that's funny. Hey, that would be useful. Yeah, that would be useful. It's like, that's food, especially if they're up at the wall. I, I made that same joke with uh, when Bo and Marsh is like, 
or, or one of those Night's Watch officers is like, what happens if Borok just ha- summons an army of pigs and we're, we're under things <laughs> like, then eat them. Y'all have food problems. That sounds useful, man. <laughs> All right, who's been watching Miyazaki? Has George been watching uh, Princess Mononoke and that's what he's thinking about here? Come on. <laughs> Actually, uh, I've been thinking of for a while, uh, we're talking about horns, the Horn of Winter. Uh, there's always been a suggestion that it essentially wakes giants from Earth. Yeah. And I've been wondering if it, since most of the other artifacts simulate some kind of magical thing, if Dragon Binder controls dragons and a, essentially a glass candle simulates green sight, maybe the Horn of Winter simulates necromancy. Like maybe you Ooh. blow it and the dead rise under your power. Whoa, I like that. That's a cool idea. I think of it as like an earthquake maker because so many of the giants like their movements and sounds are, are, are so are George uses earthquake metaphors constantly like rumbling yeah. and shaking. But I really like your idea too. That's really good. <laughs> Heard of Orox, please. Yes. Yeah. Let's make this happen. <laughs> uh, but another reason that joke is really good is that like they consider that that must've been what the horn that Melisandre burns was like, it must've been an Orox horn or something. <laughs> so like, <laughs> Orox horn summons Orox, a dragon horn summons dragon. Yeah. Okay, so the battle itself, the plan. The slavers may shiver when they spy your sails rising from the sea, but once they see you plain, they will laugh at their fears. Traitors and fishers, that's all you are. Any man can see that. Let them get as close as they like, but keep your men hidden below decks until you are ready. Then close and board them. Free the slaves and feed the slavers to the sea. But take the ships. We will have need of every hull to carry us back home. That last line is really important because it's people have been predicting since like a clash of kings that the Iron Fleet would be the vehicle for Daenerys to get from Essos to Westeros. That's and, and really not much has changed to affect that theory. It still seems to be the best theory. And here we are with the Iron Fleet literally sitting there in Slaver's Bay. So yeah, it's probably <laughs> going to happen, even though we have this Volantine fleet to consider as well. On the other hand, that's also been set up. Volantine fleet are slaves, so they might just rise up and. That might take care mm-hmm. of itself. <laughs> anyway, well, let's not worry too much about Volantis right now. The idea, the, the plan itself seems pretty straightforward. It seems like it's going to work. We see it starting to work. So yeah, good idea, especially because the Yunkai are, are really focused on the city and not worried about what's coming from the sea. They are expecting help from the sea. So it's a, you know, part of this really works out for Victorian. Um, the scenario is well set for a surprise attack here. But his attitude, his, I can't wait to fight, to get in there and kill. Like, what do you make of that? Like, I, this is like something I actually appreciate about Victorian's POVs is that I, that is a, such an alien mindset to me. It's not like, I, it's not one I respect, but I'm, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it, it gives me curiosity. I'm in, I'm like, this is such a different type of attitude. And I know it's not unrealistic. I know that human beings like that exist. People who like to fight, people who enjoy the <laughs> process of combat. And it's not like Jamie or Brienne. Like, Jamie and Brienne like fighting, but they don't really like killing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Victorian likes killing. That's a big difference. So, I don't know. What do you make of this attitude, this, this lust for combat? Victorian's such a strange character because when you read back this, this passage and his plan, he has disdain for the slavers. Meanwhile, he himself is a slaver. Yes. Rawls are slaves. <laughs> it's... Salt wives are slaves. But he's like, oh, those filthy slavers. I spin on them anyway. So what are our thralls doing during this battle? 
Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to sacrifice them to make this hard. So I'm going to let these guys die. Uh, <laughs> I may free them. Wink, wink, I won't. And I um, won't bother to earn your wants, names. Oh, yeah, I'll learn your names. Yeah. Yeah, totally, man. <laughs> I, I will. You will be best friends forever. You can trust me, Victorian Greyjoy. <laughs> Nobody can trust Victorian. Um, but the idea that he's so excited to to get into this battle, I, again, you have to wonder, like when you're talking about that line about the Hellhorn and how it it rains down destruction and death, how was Victorian always like this? Like he seems to he seems to he definitely enjoyed killing before, but there's a real like almost otherworldly bloodlust about him at this point that he yeah. really thinks that he's going to blow this horn and make a, an ocean of blood afterwards and it's like okay again is this the one ring essentially messing with his head or is it himself and then but uh we talked about this earlier as far as i can remember he's not sighted at the battle lines when the when the uh, when the Greyjoy fleet lands so yeah if he's so serious about this if he's like i have to get into battle i'm going to be the one to kill everybody i'm going to drive my axe into everybody's skull why hasn't he as far as the Winds of Winter chapters so far, that's be something powerful holding him back. Yeah, he he says he's he tells them when the time comes, he's going to blow the horn, and then you know it's step three profit. Like you said, he he's vague about what the timing is. Like, what is in his mind? What's that moment going to be? Like, what's the signal for him to blow the horn? He's like, okay, now. Like, what is that? What is he <laughs> waiting for? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. So we get one more mystery amidst all this. Like, I don't know. What's, is what's it up to Makoro? Maybe, yeah. And and the dragons are already out there. They're already it's like it's already ships on fire when the before the mm-hmm. horn is blown. Which I can't tell if that's Rhaegal just torching a ship or two, or if that's Victorian torching the ships. I, I, it's really oh hard God, to guess. Already on a dragon? No, I, I think it's the dragon because Victorian in this chapter flat out says we need every hull to take us home. So I don't think they're burning ships, right? I think they're trying to capture ships. Now, maybe they yeah. had to destroy a burn a few just because some of them weren't capturable. But it's mm-hmm. it's definitely contrary to what he his orders, like capture as many as possible. So uh, I wonder how those ships caught fire. That's interesting. So many Trojan <laughs> War vibes in The Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, and it's a huge topic that I've, I've got a huge pile of notes on that one day we'll do an episode on. But just keeping it to things that are relevant here, like the trick itself is like a Trojan horse kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Like it's even wooden instead of wooden horses, wooden ship. Danny's the most beautiful woman in the world. They're sailing east from one continent to another to steal. It's very much Helen of Troy vibes. Even Marjorie even says at the beginning of one of the uh, Feast for Crows chapters, a thousand ships in response to, <laughs> you know, which is uh, that's the, the line that Helen's face launched a thousand ships. So there's also plague in the Trojan War. There's a long ass siege, just like Marine. People, bunch of suitors for Helen, Victoria, and Euron. The same kind of stuff. Also, the gods are a big part of the Trojan War. The gods intervening in a variety of ways and then being chaotic and unpredictable, which is pretty present here. Uh, we don't know. Mm. The dragons are sort of like the gods. We don't know how they're going to behave, what they're going to do, whether the horn sounds good to them or not. <laughs> Potentially, you never know who they're going to support, which is also sort of the case in the Trojan War. One of the things that the gods would do in the Trojan War is choose certain champions or heroes and give them better gear. Like Achilles was armed by the gods. Um, I think uh, there's a couple others that were armed by the gods. I'm spacing out on some specific examples. Athena had a big part. Oh, yeah, Athena. Yeah, you're totally right. And so like, so Victorians arm 
through the power of Relore is really feels mm. kind of similar to me, like being armed Hephaestus. by the gods. Literally, or his arms. Wait, I'm thinking about this now. So, if this is a Trojan War parallel, does that make? I mean, you say, uh, spoiler, in a couple of minutes, this couple of seconds, you're able to say Danny's like Achilles, but is Victorian Achilles and is like Barristan Hector? Yeah, there is some, definitely some, I was, that's a great point. Yes, Barristan definitely has Hector vibes because he's noble and, you know, <laughs> taking this all on himself, takes on all this responsibility. And he's an, a peerless warrior, except for when he fa- faces Achilles. Um, but yeah, and Achilles sits out the war for different reasons than Danny does. But mm. Danny's not here. He's not, she's not participating. She's by far their greatest weapon. Well, when she's mounted on Drogon and she's just not present. Not because she doesn't want to be. That's a big difference. Achilles is pouting. But still, <laughs> <laughs> also you have other like slow level themes that are really similar. Like the Trojan War was all, it was very much a lot of one-on-one duels. Like the, the soldiers would stand mm-hmm. back and champions would fight. And here you have pit fighters like marching as part of the army and they're like, all really about individual glory, which is really on theme with the Trojan War. Then you have Troy getting absolutely sacked at the end of the Trojan War in this long siege, which everyone wants to sack Marine. Even the young Kai want to sack Marine. Like, (laughs) like, (laughs) the people defending it want to sack it, right? (laughs) Like, the Volunteens want to sack it. Everyone wants to. Marine is really quite doomed. And then finally, Mm. there's a character in uh, in the Iliad called Telephus, who had a wound that would not heal until intervention by the gods. It's like, okay, Ooh. well, that's right on point, too. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how... Well, George never usually just put things in directly just for one-to-ones. He's always... He references tons of stuff, but he always wants to put his own take on it. Yeah. He wants to subvert it in some way. Yeah, like how you um, said, Victorian, like Achilles is sort of Victorian and sort of Danny, and then Byerson is sort of Hector, but not fully. Yeah, like it's not yeah. one-to-one, Yeah. And Jamie's kind of like Tyr, but then not exactly. And then yeah. Robert's kind of like Thor, but then not really. Like Bloodraven is kind of Odin. Achilles has some Loras too, like especially the rage yeah. of Lor, like after the whole armor, wearing someone else's armor and then getting angry because your lover has been killed and killing your own friends. Like that's, that's what Achilles did when Patroclus died. So yeah. With, like, that's true. Maybe it's a reference to a very specific telling of the Trojan War. Of yeah. course, I mean Troy written by, uh, I think it's David Benioff, right? <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing if George R. R. Martin used David Benioff's Troy for... Yeah. <laughs> that's his model. <laughs> that would be meta as hell, man. The premier <laughs> version of the Trojan War, obviously... <laughs> by famed writer David Benioff. <laughs> okay. Um, so here, yeah. So you said that there's just things missing from the plan here. Uh, yeah. Like Victorian just hasn't considered some of these things. Like, yeah, how none of his plan involves how to get inside this walled city. Like, how do, how are you getting in? Like the Trojan horse got you inside of the walls of Troy, but this fleet is, the Trojan iron fleet only gets you, you know, in Slaver's Bay. It doesn't get you inside the city. So like, what, how, none of his plan involves telling us how he's actually going to take Danny. And that's just kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's kind of Victorian-esque, but I think we've referenced this many, many times. Going back to it, it really seems like his... Victorian is stupid. He's dumb as a stump, as George likes to tell him. But he usually has like at least some idea. And he was also responsible for the sack of Lannisport. Now, that's Euron's plan, but he still carried it out. He was yeah. able to do it. So it's not like he doesn't know how to attack and take things. That's kind of his whole thing. So the fact that he hasn't even thought about it past, I'm going to kill people and blow this horn is 
very, very odd. It's yeah. it's like a bloodthirster thing. It's like he's become like a berserker almost. <laughs> it's like it's gonna all like work a, out. Like a Viking berserker kind of character. <laughs> which he's of like, course that's kind of what the Ironborn are. They're kind of like Vikings. Yeah, it's true. They're Cthulhu Vikings, right? It's like if we're brave enough, it's gonna work out. The, the drowned mm-hmm. god and Relor and all these other things will will help them. I wonder if his plan goes as far as I'm gonna win the battle, therefore everyone will just give me the city because I am Victorian the best. Or he's going to take his super fire hand and just punch through the wall. Like <laughs> one, one stern punch, he's going to get it. That's definitely something I feel like we're going to get. I mean, not necessarily a big stern punch, although that's certainly possible. But I mean, like, <laughs> we should get to see him use this arm, right? Like, I, I would feel a little yeah. cheated if all he does is choke one slaver to death with one hand, which already showed us that, whoa, that arm is powerful. Choke, lifting someone off Ooh. their feet and choking them to death with one hand is even really big, strong guys can't do that. Like, well, maybe the, the real life mountain could do that, but. <laughs> or maybe he'll like burn them inside out. Like, yeah. hot? Like, won't actually oh, wow. burn you if you put your hand on them? Yeah. And you know what else too? Like, they're still bleeding his hand, but it wasn't for mm-hmm. his wound, or is it? Because like, w- why is he you know, I think it's just to rub blood on the horn, but it's sort of framed as like they were bleeding him before because of his wound was, you know, needed draining. But it's been treated now but with the fire. So is that still, I don't Why know. Why is he still I, doing it? Yeah. <laughs> it seems like he wanted to do it, that he thinks it's like a way of like blood sacrifice to the horn or he thinks it's like he's taking care of it. Like, you yeah. know, um, a very big thing among like uh, swordsmen within A Song of Ice and Fire is they love taking care of their blades. Like, they constantly wet them. They mm. do all these kind of things to take care of it. Maybe he's he, maybe he thinks of the, the dragon binder as like his little baby and he's taking care of it. Gotta give he's it blood every once arms. in a while. Yeah, or gets, yeah. It gets cranky without its blood. Oh, <laughs> uh, you're having a bad night. All right, let me get you some blood. It'll be fine. <laughs> Actually, with how much George talks about lactation and breast milk, I wouldn't be shocked if that's what he's going for. So here's another question. There's a topic that this is a potentially a very large topic. So maybe we maybe we don't want to get too deep into it. But just thinking ahead a little bit, Makoro's influence on Danny. That's something we touched on very briefly at the beginning is something that the show didn't give us. There's no Makoro. There's no mm-hmm. parallel Makoro on the show. There's no nope. nothing like him at all other than maybe like a minute or two of Kinvara. Oh, Kinvara. Yeah. We even saw Kinvara Street in, in, uh, in Ireland. <laughs> yeah, she just disappeared from the show. So like... Yeah. What do you do? You have any ideas, predictions for how Makoro might influence Danny? And, and like Makoro's, of course, we're, I think we're meant to think of Melisandre and Stannis because so much else makes Stannis and Danny uh, our parallels. Why not this as well? Of course, one big difference is that Makoro is with the presumably correct savior, <laughs> and uh, mm. Melisandre is not. And also, Makoro has a much better track record of accuracy with his flame reading. So, with those factors in mind, do you have any ideas on what Makoro could do, assuming he does get um, with Danny? There's an interesting car crash, basically, that's coming with <laughs> Daenerys that George is essentially sending every advisor in the world at her at the same time. You have Tyrion on her way. You have Jorah on the way. You have Brown Ben Plum. You have the Tattered Prince trying to get on her good side. You have Maester Marwyn. I mean, Archmaester Marwyn. Now you have Makoro mm-hmm. and you have Victorian. It's going to be a very crowded court once Danny arrives. So it's it's going to be like each one's going to go in a circle. It's going to be like the uh, the trick of the shadow on the wall, where it's like it's going to be like, all right, make your pitch for why I should listen to you. Makoro is going to make a very good pitch that he can offer Volantis. Now that's mm. something none of the rest of them have. If they can save the Volantine fleet and release all the slaves, 
That is a very big deal to Daenerys going forward. Tyrion can offer his mind and dragon knowledge. Marwyn can offer general knowledge about Westeros and kind of Valyrian artifacts. But Makoro's got a lot of things going. And especially if Danny comes back from Vase Dothrock. I mean, we assume we're going her. She's going there, right? That's yeah. That's going to be no argument there. Yeah, Vase Dothrock to she might come back really believing her hype a lot more than she did before. Yes, like her visions on the Dothraki Sea are very much leaning into you are actually the savior. You're going to She's save the world. getting proof of it. Yeah, there's like straightforward yeah, so evidence. Yeah. Makoro is the character that's going to play into that aspect of her more than any of the others. Marwan has some of that, but he's not a true believer. Like he's, he specifically says, I don't trust those prophecies. Makoro does. Yes. So he has a lot to offer if he survives this, and especially if he can hand over Dragonbinder. Like, oh my, not yeah. only did I bring you this fleet, not only do I have the Slaves of Lantis and the Red Temple, look, Dragonbinder, that, that Hellhorn you were talking You're about. Right. That is a lot to deliver, a lot of proof of concept, proof of power there. Be like, look, yo, I've got all this. Yeah, that is a lot, a lot, a lot. Because I think you're, I think it's also, a, you raise a different point that's kind of on the download that's important. That is, yeah, Danny needs the Iron Fleet to get across the water, but it's in, probably not enough given how no. you know a good chunk of the fleet was lost and if especially she brings like all the dothraki like come on yo that's going to take more than 60 some ships <laughs> like we need a lot yeah, more ships a lot more. That. so that the volunteer like fleet a volunteer is fleet. yep it's crewed by slaves so that that's set up quite nicely to fit in so danny's fleet could be just truly monstrous and you're right someone with an advisor like makoro who can predict the future and and repeatedly and Danny will be like, okay, well, he predicted the future again. I'll, I guess I'll listen to him. <laughs> you know, because mm. that's kind of what Victorian was like. He he predicted the future several times and Victorian's like, yeah, he just clearly knows what's <laughs> up. Like Stannis. Like, how are you going to ignore Stannis that? No, same kind of relationship where yeah. he's like, I can't deny her powers. I guess I have to use them. Yeah, like Stannis. Yeah, exactly. Stannis didn't doesn't like it, but he's like, I need this. Like, I'm not going to get the throne without this. I'm, I'm behind the eight ball that my, my enemies are way too powerful. So mm. yeah, uh, it, it's, it's a similar sort of like, is this going to corrupt Danny a bit? Is this probably not a positive influence? It might, it might help her accomplish no. the goal of saving Westeros, saving uh, Westeros from the long night or saving the world from the long night. But like on a personal level, yeah, she's already... We've seen this in her scenes at the pyramid where she's sitting on the top of the pyramid, which is very symbolic of her being like a mm -hmm. god already. And she's even thinking that. She's like, am I a god now? And she doesn't like it. She's like, she feels lonely. But well, she might now. Yeah, she'll feel even more lonely if, uh, you know, with these stuff. And Makoro's just going to be like, look, you're the savior of the world. You're, yes, I, I know you want to you have human emotions, but you've got some rather important duties to, to attend to. Mm -hmm. So I'm uh, very I looking said, forward to that. I said car crash on purpose because all these advisors, I think, are going to have very negative impacts on her. Like Marwyn's coming with the idea that everyone's out to kill Danny and Westeros. They hate magic. They hate dragons. They hate you. That's a bad attitude to be imparting. Tyrion's self-destructive and going to tell her to essentially burn down everyone that he hates because that's what basically what he's been up to. Yeah. Jorah, who knows what's going on in his set. Uh, the Tattered Prince wants her to just destroy Pentos. Makoro, I don't even know what Makoro's up to, but feeding into her ego and to the idea that she is godlike and above other people cannot be good for her where she's going. And I think that's on purpose from George. And that's actually something the show kind of left out. They made all of her advisors good, basically. Yeah. They made them relatively good people, even guys like... Um, Instead like, of uh, being a bad influence, 
uh, like personality wise, they just made mistakes. Yeah. That's what it was. Like Tyrion yeah. made mistakes. He was still a good guy, but he just screwed up. Dario's a very bad person, but he's a good person in the show, more or less. Yeah. Like he's yeah. brutal, but he's got a pretty good moral compass as depicted. None of these guys that are coming at Danny seem to have a good moral compass. No, I agree. <laughs> Except for maybe Barristan. But, uh, but Barristan is maybe not going to be around. He may die. Uh, so. Yeah, about Barristan. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, he, I mean, he's, he, he does have some, certainly his moral compass is off in some ways, but, he, but in other ways, it's about as good as it gets. <laughs> Depends. Mm. Depends on how you view him. Like, yeah, certainly when it comes to Ares, his moral compass was off. But <laughs> yeah. when it comes to, like, children, he's... Like mm-hmm. he's right about like we 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 appreciate Barristan's take on children because it's very similar to Ned and Danny who were like yeah. no we don't kill children period all the rest of these guys not going to be great <laughs> you're right that's totally true and this is super again I point I point to the the complete lack of this on the show not like you said what few advisors she had were good guys Varus is like not a child torturer slash murderer on the show so no he's a lot better is vastly different and there's no Aegon plot so that's just it's all just so different. And Eerie and Jikri were killed off. Like, they don't, she didn't even have them. And Recaro and like all of those characters mm. were killed off on the show. So, her, you're right. Her court is just, it's nothing like the show. You can't even compare it. It's just like 10 times larger and more diverse. <laughs> and we're not even sure if all of them are going to make it. Like you said, like, yeah. will Marwin and Makoro even get there? That's not even 100% certain. Mm. Yeah. A couple more themes for us to discuss, and this is, this is basically our last section. Um, we've got a, one thing that I find very interesting about Victorian's chapters is despite him being dumb as a stump, which is, you know, George's words <laughs> that I wouldn't dispute, he does have a poetry to him. He does have this sort of Norse, uh, like, battle rap kind of thing going on where he's poetic, and it's interesting. Like, this brutal guy has... Yeah, he occasionally says interesting things. And one recurring pattern was his views on the sea and the sky. Makes a ton of sense that a sailor would be keyed into what's going on with the sky and the sea. But it means even more because with Victorian's brother, who calls himself the Storm, you know, there's that going on as well. And he's trying to make himself a god. And the Ironborn beliefs center around the duality of the Storm God and the Drowned God. In this chapter, we have a line that's the sea was smooth and still, the sky bright with stars, which is interesting because it's it's similar to this line that we see about four or five times, all at the end of A Dance with Dragons, where it says, for example, come sunset, the sea turned as black as ink and the swollen sun tinted the sky a deep and bloody red. Okay, so there's a Targaryen colors or Euron's colors. Here we have the sea was green and the sky was gray. The morning grief and warrior wench and Victorian's own iron victory captured the slaver galley from Yunkai. Then the sea was black and the moon was silver as the iron fleet swept down on the prey. Then the sea was blue and green and the sun blazing down from an empty blue sky when the iron fleet took its second prize. So what I noticed about this one is it's a shift in description instead of color. There's no color in this line. The sea was smooth and still. The sky bright with stars. Instead, it's about movement and light, which are more relevant to pre-battle than the color of the sky, which is more just trying to tell if there's a storm coming or just you're appreciating the natural beauty. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or is that just kind of it's the thing that speaks for itself? Well, George, George is obviously a very good writer and he's very good at describing things. Like I think some of my favorite descriptions of these kind of things is uh, there's one about the God's eye, how it was like hammered, like blue steel 
against mm-hmm. like the sun in the sky or something like that. He's very good at these kind of things. But if you're looking at, you were talking about the colors between them, the idea that the sea has no color to it, it's just filled with stars, it's smooth and still, perhaps is a way of George signaling to the reader that like, I don't know who's going to win or maybe no one does. Like the idea that the only uh, winner in this thing will be um, the sea itself. And there's also the idea that there's been many, there's been this sea of blood that a lot of people think it might be Euron, it might be Victorian that's coming. Like, is this the um, last time that the sea will be smooth before, essentially before the Ragnarok starts and wins a winner and everything goes crazy? The oh, last yeah. still moment. Wow, that's a good point. Yeah, I like that. That's really good. Good, good call. It, it, I, this is something that when I first started reading A Song of Ice and Fire, I didn't pay any attention to this kind of stuff at all. I was just... Uh, more of a nerd reader. I didn't pay attention to things like themes. <laughs> you? No. Yeah, right? No way, right? But this is 20 years ago. And so this is the kind of stuff that, man, I wish I paid more attention to stuff back then. It's so It tells you so much about authorial intent. Mm. And yeah, if you're keyed into these subtleties, they can really say a lot. So another example, his sense of poetry. Now, Victorian is not the creator of those statements. It's kind of more of the narrator. But he does have these poetic thoughts. Like, for example, look at this alliteration. The slavers may shiver when they spy your sails rising from the sea. That's cool. <laughs> That's a good line. Yeah. And uh, what about this one? Uh, they would be the first to strike a blow, the first to see that look of fear in the foeman's eyes. That's more semi-alliteration with those Fs. And then it, th- this again reminds me of the Iliad. Again, reminds me of the Trojan War because they really go over the top in the Iliad with their descriptions of brutality as glorious, right? Like there's this line where it's like, there's nothing like a broken boy bloodied and dying, you know, with a spear. And I mean, it's like, this is good. Like what are you being sarcastic Homer? (laughs) But, But I don't think he is. So it's really an old tradition to be like, to glorify this really brutal things and George's maybe tapping into that I guess one thing about Victorian is that he's very tuned into ironborn culture and the um and their traditions like that's one of the things that Euron uses against him uh like when he takes Victorian's favorite salt wife and then knows that Victorian can't kill him because of the ban on kinsling he takes that very seriously so I wonder if these phrases are traditional ironborn before battle things that he's repeating and that's why they're poetic but he's memorized them because he takes i mean for <laughs> ironborn culture is horrific yeah but he takes it seriously he, he, Very seriously, he makes the right. sacred things so i would not be surprised if these are versions of uh long repeated phrases that captains say i mean this is something balon used to say or his father uh would say before they went um reaving uh. And he was a smart man. I mean, you know, different sort yeah. of like for, for an ironborn, he was progressive. You know, that's not maybe not saying a lot. Mm-hmm. but And uh, I, yeah, yeah, you're right. This doesn't sound like Victorian. It sounds like he's repeating something. That's a good point. Yeah, because like he's not an imaginative guy. He's an, he asks one thing I, I like to cite about Victorian is he asks really interesting questions. He has no idea how to answer <laughs> them. But he the way he like ponders the mysteries of the gods, I'm like, oh, that's actually a pretty good question. <laughs> but he's like yeah, what would the true. gods do what would Aaron do here and I'm like yeah what would Aaron do here <laughs> and his his like meanderings don't go anywhere <laughs> but it's, it provides us with excellent discussion fodder he also asks really sharp questions of Euron that Euron then dodges it's like yes. that was kind of insightful that you saw that Victorian how did you do that <laughs> it's like maybe I 
Occasionally you surprise me there, but you're also easy to get off topic. So I'm going to distract you with, look at this shiny thing. Or, <laughs> or I'm going to wear a robe slightly open and then that's going to make you uncomfortable. That's exactly what popped into my head. <laughs> it's like cover yourself. That's brother. what popped into your head? Oh, God, disease. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, Stop thinking about Euron's dick. <laughs> I'm thinking about Euron's horn. <laughs> His human horn <laughs> to make a Futurama <laughs> reference. <laughs> His big tentacle. Oh, God. I hope you guys are enjoying this. <laughs> Current viewers, zero. Uh-oh. No, just kidding. Oh, boy. Just kidding. Okay, so our, <laughs> our final topic for today is one of the most important, I'd say. The co- I just noted it here in the document is sacrifice slash slavery, which is to say there's magic, there's mystery, there's dragons, there's battle, there's blood. But as always, we must center it all on the human element. That's pretty much the most important thing here, as always. Oftentimes, one of the best ways for us to do that is for us to try to take on the perspective of whichever on-screen characters there are that have the least agency. And that's particularly useful in a character like Victarion, who is among the least relatable, right? He's, if you take all the POVs and like, who are you most like? He's at the bottom of the list for almost everyone, <laughs> right? Like, you're like, maybe I've got a little of this character, a little of this character, Victarion, though? Uh, no, not really, you know? <laughs> so I think most of us have more in common with, say, the bastard's bastard <laughs> than we do the Iron Captain. And that brings us to a line like this. Sound the horn and live, and I'll make free men of you. One or two or all three. I'll give you wives, a bit of land, a ship to sail, thralls of your own. Men will know your names. Even you, Lord Captain? Said the bastard's bastard. I. I'll do it then. On me. The brute crossed his arms and nodded. If it made the three feel braver to believe they had a choice, let them cling to that. Victorian cared little what they believed. They were only thralls. To respond to that quote, we have a brilliant take from one of our commenters on, uh, I think this came from Flick, yes, from Flick. Sophia says, that's the hell of any compulsory situation. Most of us, quote, choose the path of survival and knuckle under. Or we knuckle under for security or to save a loved one. Ned chose to sacrifice his honor to save Sansa, for instance. But he really didn't have another choice, did he? When a choice is a sucky choice like that, the making of it becomes part of the abuse. It makes you party to your own diminishment. It's all the more insidious that way. Great take, Sophia. Very true. Very accurate. It covers a lot of bases throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. As you use, you use Ned as an example, and it's a perfect example because, yes, Ned chose, but he really didn't have a choice, did he? Would you agree with that, uh, Joe? Oh, yeah, definitely. And in terms of how this quote is used, I think you can very easily apply this to Victorian and Euron, that this is a, probably how Euron thinks about Victorian. It's like, yes. let Victorian think he has a choice about blowing that horn. Maybe he thinks he has a choice about giving me Daenerys or not, but I know that he doesn't. He is just a puppet that I am playing with my strings. And I think you see that in, these, in this chapter in particular, that Victorian feels that he has made a choice to blow the horn, to take the dusty woman in his own, to claim Daenerys, but he doesn't really. He's still, there's something controlling him. There's something pushing him. And it's, it's just kind of undermining the idea that any of this is Victorian's idea. And I think that makes the, uh, the downfall of the Iron Captain will probably have a little bit of... Um, uh, empathy to it and the fact that maybe Victorian will will realize in the end that all these things he's been going for were really never his choice that he was just dancing at the um 
yeah. on the strings of Huron Greyjoy. Well said. Yeah, I agree. It's super true. Like he's making pawns of these thralls, but Euron is making a pawn of him. So it's really nicely said. And that's um, like this line. Victorian did not oft forgive a thrall for talking out of turn, but the boy was young, no more than 20 and soon to die. Besides, like he's talking about himself, too, right? Like he, mm-hmm. too, is soon to die. Besides, I would think. Mm-hmm. And it also kind of indicates that he doesn't actually think the thralls are going to survive. He's like, yeah, if you survive, I'll do this for you. But in his mind, he doesn't actually seem to believe there's much a chance of them living. <laughs> the same as Euron giving him the dusky woman in Dragonbinder. Yes. It's like, yeah, I'll give you these things because it doesn't matter. I know at the end of this, I'm going to have all the stuff I want and you're dead, Victorian. Yes. And so Song of Ice and Fire is constantly reminding us that it's a story about power. Sometimes that power is filtered through the fantasy elements. It's a way for... George, to expand on the topic and to show us new ways that power can be abused or how it affects human beings, things that aren't directly related to our real world, but we can use to understand the real world. Mm -hmm. Another example being Penny uh, and Tyrion's thoughts Mm -hmm. on slavery being, quote, a choice to some degree, how you, you could choose death. And well, is that really a choice? I mean, for some people it would be maybe, but not everyone can have that kind of hardcore mindset. And also Danny, who just has this loathing for the institution, partly because, well, it's a loathsome institution, but also she has a personal stake in it because she was basically enslaved herself for a time there, sold to Drogo and all that. It worked out better than it does for most slaves, but the bar is pretty damn low there. It's a really overarching theme. You could almost say it's one of the biggest themes of all of Song of Ice and Fire is power dynamics. And you brought up the Dusky Woman. Yeah, what's the point of of her in the first place. What do you what do you think about the dusky woman in in regard here? She just a, a good example of this, someone that's forced to go along. She's just doing the best she can to survive. She doesn't really have true agency here other than jumping overboard and dying. Like that would be about all her choices are. Um and she hissed yeah, at Makoro. What do you think about mm. just just tell me what you think about the dusky woman in general. <laughs> uh so the dusky woman is Obviously, Tywin Lannister. I mean, quite <laughs> clearly, she is Tywin Lannister in glamour. That is that is quite clear. Obviously, um, yeah. I wanted a new theory. Like everybody knows that. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, in terms of what she knows or what she's after, she's a salt wife, basically. So she has no choice yeah. in what she's doing. Like you said, if she wants to disobey Victorian, it will be her death. So she has to keep going on with it. It's the nature of unfortunately slavery. But I like the idea of like the question here that why did Euron give him her in the first place? And that's because the primary conflict between Euron and Victorian is his favorite salt wife that Euron um, seduced. And then Victorian had to felt like he had to kill based on Ah, um, Ironborn. Perfect. Right. Sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to throw that out there. Like he felt like he had to do that. He felt like he had no choice. Now we would say, are you kidding? Why did you have to do that? But still, he did feel that way. But in a sense, by giving Victorian a salt life back, it's a way of Euron continuing to mess with him and a way of continuing to exert power because it's not the point of the salt life, especially for Victorian, is you're supposed to take them. It's supposed to be the iron price, but this is a gift and gifts are something cowards get. And it's another way of Euron is messing with Victorian at a very basic level. And he knows that it, it very much bothered Victorian personally that he had to kill the salt wife as according to their culture. So he knows if he gives her one back, at some point, 
Victorian's going to latch onto her in the same way he did the first Salt Wife. It's it's another just like brilliant mindfuck from Euron yeah. on how to get Victorian to um to do what he wants basically psychological just, hook kind of. yeah it's a psychological hook on him to the point that we see by this chapter he's not only feels like the the horn itself is kind of like his lover but he has really taken in the dusky woman as a part of his inner circle he's mm-hmm. telling like you said she's like his therapist she's telling her everything she's really become an important yeah. part of his life. And from a cultural perspective, she diminishes him because like you said, she, Victorian takes the Iron Price thing very seriously. Like he even felt yeah. shamed at buying food in Volantis, like of all mm. things. Like, you should have stolen it. I paid money for food. Oh God, shameful. Like, wait, what? <laughs> so yeah, mm-hmm. so by accepting this gift and not earning it, you're right. He is, he's shamed himself. Like we would not see it that way, but within but his own worldview, it's, it's consistent. And so does the rest of the the rest of the men serving Victorian. They understand that taking a gift from Euron is a way of shaming him. Yes. And it's a way of undermining his his standing within the Iron Fleet. That's a great take. Yeah. I, I think that's it. I think that I think we've I feel confident with with these takes that this is uh George's purpose with this character. <laughs> but if there's a supernatural angle, like I don't believe she's somewhat like a, a faceless person or whatever. That doesn't really work <laughs> for me. But I do wonder because she hissed at Makoro. And if that's supposed to be like a warning, like, yeah, Makoro maybe isn't such good news, even though Victorian's maybe worse news. Maybe Makoro is worse news himself. Victorian is just to some guy that isn't going to affect the global scale of things, whereas Makoro could, could influence Danny, which is a much bigger deal, potentially. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, Makoro, everything he's done, as we've seen uh, in terms of predicting, has been accurate. So if she was a threat to him, he would probably perceive that. Uh, so I guess that she's not, which to me implies that she's not something other than she seems in terms of like some sort of assassin or spy, something like that. She might, I, I think more along the lines of what you said, that she's, she's part of your own psychological games, like, like a Kyra sort of thing to Theon, mm-hmm. like the way Ramsey played with, with him. Which brings me to another parallel, Wex. Wex being, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the one who his tongue was ripped out and is uh, Theon's former squire and is helping Davos navigate to uh, Rickon. So maybe if, if the Dusky Woman somehow survives all this, you wonder if there's things that she could tell. I don't know. <laughs> That'd be interesting. <laughs> to tell uh, Euron when they get back? I suppose so. Or and no, to even tell idea. Danny. If she survived, like if, oh, if Victor, you know, like if they all end up in Danny's yes, no. court. You know, and, who knows? That's what, yeah, that's one of those things that Victorian, I think, doesn't realize that she, you can still get information out of the mute person, basically. Yeah. Even though she has her tongue tied out, like, and that's also a theme with uh, Jamie. Yeah. Actually, that's a kind of weird parallel. Jamie and um, Ellen Payne. He's telling all of his secrets to Ellen Payne under the assumption he can't tell anybody. It's like, why do these characters think that? Don't you realize that somebody can ask you yes or no questions and you can just <laughs> yeah. nod or... It's great, it's yeah, because like, those are happening at the same time in A Dance with Dragon or in a, at a Feast for Crows that we, uh, like, even though they're split books, but they're basically right at the same time. So yeah, we, we took note of that at the time and you got to consider the dusky woman in this mix of, of these like close companions of people who are POVs, but they themselves can't speak. It's really interesting. I also wonder um, in terms of like the hissing at Makoro, so we don't know anything about her backstory, but we do know that red priests are well known for sacrificing people and especially mm-hmm. sacrificing um, uh, people they don't care about. Like he, he gets Victorian to sacrifice Maester Kerwin 
Melisandre is on a burning spree in Westeros. So maybe she has an experience with the Red Priests uh, wherever Victor, wherever Euron found her. And but also, your Macoro's scary as hell. He's, he's like he's huge. <laughs> he's got the the crazy wild hair. He has those tattoos that move and like grow. He's got yeah. that big staff with the dragon face on it. Like I don't think you have to have a a magical reason to look at, at Macoro and go like, this guy is bad news. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's the same with like the horn, right? Like the horn has like he's putting his hand over the glyphs and it seems to sing to him. And it's like, mm -hmm. that's not normal, man. <laughs> it's like, is that his memory thinking mm. about the power from this, this when he heard it blown? Or is that real? Is that some actual magic happening? Yeah, it's the same kind of thing. George is so good at melding the supernatural with human conflict in ways that you can't really tell what's what and it, you get a sense that it's both a lot of times, I think. That's usually where I land is it's both. Um, That's or, true. Or, she could also be like the straight man in the relationship <laughs> where Victorian has his mind so warped at this point, she's the only one having correct reactions yeah. to things. If she's found her way in a slave shape, slave trade, she's probably encountered the red priests and knows enough to be scared of them. That's a great, yeah, you're totally right because they are slavers. Like the red, like, Melisandre was given to the Red Temple as a slave, and and most mm -hmm. likely Makora was too, given the face tats. So yeah, that's a good point. Uh, okay, well I think we're pretty much done. I have one big question for you, which okay. is one last big question, and I guess we have a couple remaining questions from the audience here. But one big question for you is, given everything we've discussed, what do you think is going to be the Victorian's death. How do you think he dies? Any predictions related to that? If you want to throw out a when and where as well, I'm all ears. I'm curious what mm. you think because I've really, I think it's myself, I think it's going to be after the battle, some point after the battle. So my preference is my Crusader Kings 2 game when Victorian mounted a dragon and captured Stannis from King's Landing. That was my favorite. Whoa. I'm hoping that was an, <laughs> that was an amazing game where cool. I took him as my, my chief general and he was conk, took a dragon and started like, kicking ass for me. I was like, thank you, Victorian. You did great things. But I guess in terms of like the non-awesome Crusader Kings game I played, uh, I don't think he dies in the Battle of Fire. I don't think like there's too much about him and Euron at this point for them not to clash again at some point. Mm -hmm. That There's such an idea that he's trying to conquer Euron, that he's trying to one-up him. He's going to use Dragonbinder to conquer the world. He's going to take the Seastone Chair back from him. He's going to use all these gifts, he's going to become like the greatest guy out there. That it would be kind of an uh, an underwhelm if he just dies in battle. Yeah. Like, why would you? Why would you set up all this psychological warfare that his brother is using on him just to have him essentially die with a spear through his back? I mean, like that'd be realistic, but I don't think it would be like particularly good narratively. Hmm. Um, and if so, Aaron dies, which is a lot more telegraphed at this point, given where he is yeah. at. Then you've only got one POV left that has really has a lot of memory and understanding of Euron, and that might be valuable given what a big character he's set to be. Uh, so the, yeah, I hadn't considered that. But in terms of like where he's going to go, what's going to happen in the Winds of Winter, I can't imagine a scenario in which Daenerys Targaryen looks at Victorian Greyjoy and says, you know what? I'm in. I'm in with you. <laughs> Firehand, Dragonhorn, uh, Greyjoy, Pirates. This is what I need to take Westeros. You're <laughs> it, Victorian Greyjoy. I think Makoro makes the much stronger case. I think um, I don't think he ends up with Danny. I don't think he ends up in her court. But I think we may see him with everything taken from him 
and him sort of becoming like like one ship on his way back to Westeros, that kind Whoa. of thing. Just like a totally broken man wow. trying to get revenge on Euron because he's he's George has set up he has insanely high uh, expectations of where he's going after this battle. Yeah. So the only place for that to go is rock bottom. Well, he'll have to rename the Iron Victory the Iron Defeat, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's famous for his defeat. That's his thing. His, he lost to Stannis. So that's true. It's that's kind true. of telegraphed that he's not going to win the way he wants. Hey, we talked about parallels between Stannis and Danny. Maybe that'll be another one. <laughs> there you go. Both of them beat Victorian. <laughs> She may see him as a as an adversary, and that's probably not incorrect. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Two last comments from commenters. <laughs> Stefan B <laughs> says it's definitely an inversion uh, of Victorian not learning the names of these characters to compare to Danny, who mm. really tried hard to remember Hosea's name, though she did forget Hosea's name. Although to be fair, she forgot Hosea's name when she's like hungry and vomiting and exposed like out on the death rocky sea by herself so maybe that's part of just hunger and thirst and, and being tired but it still pissed her off that made her sad and shame that she couldn't think of the name whereas victorian here is not even trying and probably lying to them about his intent to learn their names if they survive maybe uh, there's something in that the idea that like i believe he's he's promised by makoro that everyone will know the iron captain's name maybe he becomes anonymous Oh, wow. That's a great idea. The one idea. thing he fears. Everyone's going to forget his name. Yes. I like it. I liked it. <laughs> one <laughs> other la final comment. Uh, Francis Drake, the great English mm, pirate. He was pretty much a pirate. Yeah. <laughs> he's not He's not always remembered that <laughs> they way. They were all but basically pirates. He was a pirate. Yeah. He, he officially a privateer, but pirate. Yeah. He mm -hmm. did had a similar maneuver. One time he was trapped. I think he was rather than trying to get in, he was trying to get out. I forget exactly, but he used fire ships where uh, he took ordinary looking, innocent, you know, mundane ships, made them look normal or just kept them looking normal. They were already looking normal, filled them with explosives and sailed them towards, I think, a harbor or a blockade. And then the, the blockade had to get out of the way or, or, or else these, you know, and they didn't know it was coming until the last minute because the ships mm -hmm. looked just like ordinary ships. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait, these are on fire. So they had to get out of the way. It's kind of a similar, a bit of a similar idea in that you use innocent looking ships as a decoy for something far more sinister or aggressive. That's pretty mm. cool. Like referring to, and of course we referred to this sort of thing as a standard pirate trick. And well, you know, Francis Drake wasn't nearly the first person to use fire ships in the world. It's just uh, a particularly notable anecdote that comes to mind. At least it came to Stefan B's mind. And I did, I did, I had heard of that example Thanks to our mm -hmm. friends over at the Pirate History Podcast, which I'm a big fan of and occasionally shout out. It's been a while, though. So, hey, shout out to the Pirate History Podcast. Great, great show. On the Blackwater, they use a fire ship, basically. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, very similar, except, yeah, I guess in this case, they weren't, weren't so cautious at the Blackwater, but it's, you're no. right, it's the same concept. <laughs> They're just like Sir Emery's mm -hmm. like, ah, let's just go. Who cares? They've only got five ships. I don't care. Ships with nobody on board? What's the problem? <laughs> Easy to conquer. That's even easier. Wow. <laughs> Okay, well, thanks so much, Joe Magician. You, you were, you're great. You're uh, always smooth with your words off the drop of a hat. Oh. And you always have such great things to say, things that I've never considered, which I imagine is also true for our listeners. I bet a lot of people out there today and people who haven't heard it yet will be feeling the same way when they do that, hey, those were some really good takes by Joe Magician. New things <laughs> to think about. 
especially because this is the first time I've read this chapter. Uh, you asked <laughs> well, me to read it, and I was like, I have never read this one before. All right, we'll give it a shot. <laughs> Fresh eyes, right? I mean, that helps. I believe we wondered on Twitter if <laughs> which hand he used for the finger blasting. Oh, God, yeah, was it his burned hand or not? Oh, oh no. <laughs> I hope it's not that yeah, one. Yeah, we were like, we um, hope it's his other hand. <laughs> I hope it's the other one, but I, I do think it's, it's very strange the way that he rubs it and just goes like, my, my horn. Oh, I know. I want the exact like, wording of that's that. That's so creepy. It's so weird and creepy. Yeah. Well, I, I want to see the exact precise wording of that. Oh, I kind of don't actually, but I do. We need to, to, to properly understand. Although I don't know that we will understand, but to, to have any chance at understanding it, we need the, we need the exact writing of that one. I wonder if there's like some sort of salt wife thing in her and like, if somewhere in here there's like an ironborn thing that he officially took her to wife or something like yeah, that. I don't know. Well, I don't know I, enough about I, their culture. I'd be salty about it. Hey yo. Whoa. <laughs> With the fire fist. Nobody likes the fire <laughs> salt fist and fire. Thing. It's not blood and fire now. It's salt and fire. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> fire fist. Uh, do you, what do you have coming up, Joe Magician? Tell everybody again where to find you, what you've done recently, and what's coming up, all that. Oh, you can find me on my YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash Joe Magician. I also upload everything as a podcast feed to the wit and wisdom of Joe Magician because I am so clever that I copied everybody else that has ever used that name. Uh, they're yeah, basically just too. audio rips <laughs> of all my streams and my videos. So if you don't have two hours to sit me, to watch me like staring into the camera and looking around and doing all these kinds, you can just listen to it that way. Upcoming, I have my video about... Lady Stoneheart in the Winds of Winter, what she's really up to beyond just killing Freys. I think there's a very, very particular goal that I think is being overlooked Ooh. by characters in the universe and kind of in the fandom in general. Uh, after that, I have a super secret project of I got some, uh, I got something nobody else has, and I'm gonna make a video about it. That's gonna be kind of in kind of you know something well, to look forward to. That's cool. Well, I'm something. I have super no idea. <laughs> Like y'all out there listening, Joe hasn't like told us what it is. So we're in as much in the dark as you are about what the <laughs> secret is. So something for us all to look forward to. <laughs> it's a, Very cool. It's going to be amazing. I'm Hell sure yeah. everyone will, will enjoy it. Nice. Uh, and then almost every other Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time or Eastern Daylight Time, I think it is now, um, I go live to talk for two hours about uh, kind of whatever, whatever comes up to my head. My recent topics were... Marwin the Mage, Maester Eamon. I've done one entirely just on glass candles. Nice. Um, yeah, you Varimir tend to like you, you like a lot of the supernatural topics. I think you're really yeah, that's some one of your strengths. I mean, you have you have many strengths, but that's one I think oh. talking about like the where your interest tends to. That's kind of how mm -hmm. I, when I think about you. Your name is Joe Magician, Ashea says. Joe so, yeah, Magician. It it's in the name. <laughs> yeah, I, t I tend to like the fantasy stuff and trying to dig into it and really what it is. Part of why I thought you'd be and, a great uh, fit for this one because it's full of fantasy elements, right? It's Certainly a lot more of them. And how they meld with the psychology because George doesn't just use them for fantasy woo, I guess I would say. Right. He only uses them in a way that enhances the stories he's already telling. Yeah, which is why there's not a ton of it. Although it is, it is certainly increased over time as the story has gotten deeper. Mm -hmm. um, but they continue to be, right, they, they're all serving... The character elements. They're yes, not, they don't. It's not the other way around. They're big. There are other, there are stories where the fantasy or the sci-fi elements are the plot. That's not yeah. a Song of Ice and Fire. Yep, and that is what sets it apart from so many other things. It's not the only one that does that, but it's one of the best. It's certainly one of the most mm -hmm. popular, and that is a big part of why we're here. So thank you to George R. Martin as well for creating all this. Uh, every once in a while, we got to give the big man a shout out. He deserves it. 
<laughs> Love George R. R. Martin. Yep, the man, the myth, the legend. That's what the M M stands for. No, it's only one. And you R. R. up in his <laughs> castle in the mountains of somewhere, up in <laughs> <Yes>. his cabin. <laughs> He's actually become Leighton Hightower at this point. He is Leighton Hightower. <laughs> so next time, as I said at the beginning, we're sticking with all the Slavers Bay chapters. So we're going to do Tyrion 1 and 2. We barely have anything on Tyrion 1. Tyrion 2 is the one that's fully released. And our guest will be Grey Area. So we'll be doing that. And then we'll be following that up with Barrison 1 and 2 the, the weeks after that. So um, we shall be announcing the full guest list with those as we get that set as well as the rest of the schedule which is almost done but with guests it takes a little longer to line things up to make sure everyone can make these times and, and getting it all in order it's a little it's not quite the same as us just making our own schedule with only us to consider so uh, please be patient with us as we get that schedule made it should be out this week we did mention a couple of our older episodes during this one we mentioned the Battle of Fire episode which was also a long time ago, but most of what's there is still accurate. There hasn't been a lot of changes, maybe a few different interpretations, but we try to set up all the structure and just get everything straight uh, so you understand what's happening, who all the players are and all that. So that's the, a big point of that. Same goes for our Hellhorn episode, which the Forsaken chapter hadn't been released. The World of Ice and Fire hadn't been released. Fire and Blood hadn't come out. The show was in season two when we released our Hellhorn episode. Uh, but of course, since the show didn't have the horn, not a whole lot has changed. So there's not a whole lot of overlap with what we discussed today. We get deeper into the origin of the horn, uh, Valyrian stuff more generally, um, more about Makoro, things like that. So very relevant despite how old it is. And it expands on like a lot of stuff we talked about today. If you are interested in participating in the voice project, meaning our Winds of Winter chapter audio projects, which are just going to be free for everyone. We're not only not interested in making money off of that, we're not allowed to. <laughs> this is not, this is someone else's material. We can't just do that. That's like trying to make money off a cover song, basically. So no, these are just, this is something fun we're doing. A lot of community people are, are adding their effort and time and skills. A lot of skillful people have joined in this project. If you want to be a voice actor, that means potentially taking on the role of a big character, a main character with lots of lines, or just getting in there with a one-liner. There's a lot of characters, over 100 in these 10 chapters that have been pre-released. Over 100 voices, different characters speak. And like I said, some of them have one line. Like, for example, we need to cast the ravens that speak during Theon's chapter. There's two ravens, they say different things. Actually, we've, ca we've already casted one of those. <laughs> but we still have one raven slot and over nine, about 90 other voices or so haven't been cast yet. So definitely submit for any role and any of the TWOW chapters. Um, we may not get back to you right away because we're working on them kind of one at a time, but feel free to submit them at any time to westroshistory at gmail.com. Join our Discord as well, where there's discussions about it happening. A lot of that stuff is centered there. So if that piques your interest, Get on in, get involved, or just hang out and wait for the final product and listen to it and enjoy it when that drops. Thanks again to our guest, Joe Magician. Thanks to Ashea for managing so many things off screen and production and all those things. So much goes on behind the scenes here. 
History of Westeros mods, got to give them a shout out. They really deserve it. Scott and Rebecca and Ari and Tommy and Jennifer and Laura. And I think I called everyone. Apologies if not. And you guys do a great job over there on Facebook. We had uh, our first ever Facebook live chat. I got on Friday instead of the game stream and just answered questions for a little while. You can see the thread on our Facebook group. Um, Timestamps for all the questions asked. We'll do one of those every once in a while. It was fun enough that we'll make it semi-regular. You can also interact with myself and other History of Westeros uh, commenters on Flick and Slack. Like I said, Facebook and Discord as well already. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld, a.k.a. Claradox, for our video intro and for the maps behind me. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Reredus intro music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for the regular History of Westeros music. Thanks to our Benjineer for making our sound quality as good as it could be. Thank you to our many patrons for the financial support. We would not be here today without you. We wouldn't have been here last week without you. We wouldn't have been here any of these weeks without you. So you guys are the lifeblood of the show. Guys and gals, we wouldn't be able to do it without you. And our good friends over at uh, the Here Be Dragon show are covering the classic movie Highlander. There can be only one. So that's a cool one. Check that out. Check them out if you're a fan of that movie or a fan of Here Be Dragons. And uh, that's it, everybody. Uh, we'll uh, see you all next week with Gray Area for Tyrion and onward for the rest of the Winds of Winter chapters. Until next time, folks, thanks again, and Valar, re-read us.